You gotta let go of this Jeopardy thing, Glenn. Hey, I got my ticket. <laughs> The rest of my life, it's the gravy train. <laughs> nah, he's a super nice guy. I just, I was hating the fact that people were giving him all this crap for actually playing the game well. Like, have you seen the backlash? Oh, I have actually seen this where he is sort of. Uh, this is actually interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's sort of a like a Moneyball. You know, he he he's playing yes. Jeopardy like Moneyball is to baseball. Yeah. Right. And I, and I asked him, I was like, how much did you spend on strategy and how much of memorizing? Ahead of time, he's like, totally strategy. Like, he, he memorized some stuff, but he basically figured out how to play the um, daily doubles during the games, which is the, the people miss that. You can win during the game. You don't have to win at Final Jeopardy. And so right. he basically wins during the game. And the most, the highest grossing winners have all essentially played the game that way. I mean, Ken Jennings was a little different, but he was early after they changed some of the rules. And, yeah, and so but forth. I actually, who's the, the new guy's name? What's his name? Arthur Chu. Arthur Chu. I actually I, became aware of him because I saw a piece that um, Jennings wrote about him. Defending yeah, him. it was great. It was really nice. I right. So like, there's yeah. sort of a like the traditional way to play Jeopardy, the gentleman style, if you would, is you you pick a category if you have control of the board you pick a category that appeals to you and you pick the the lowest you know go from the top down so in the first round you'll pick the two hundred dollar then the four hundred dollar if you keep getting it right and work your way down to the higher money and you know the, I guess there's some correlation between the higher money and harder questions yeah well a little bit the, I think that it's actually weird they do make the they do. Make the questions a little harder as it goes down as it goes down the board. Not always, but typically. And the producers ask you to go from top to bottom, and they don't tell you to do it. And it's not a rule, right. but they say, "Look, most people do best this way. It's less confusing. The audience prefers it. It's probably a better way to play. We're right. not going to make you do it." And um, it's just in the heat of the moment, it's really hard to make the right judgment. But daily doubles are occur predominantly in predictable locations. Right. To, that they're and, not they're not randomly <clears throat> located. That there's if you study the game and look at where they've been you can you know there's some spots that are higher percentage significantly higher percentage chance of being a daily double than others and exactly. it's if you have control of the board it is to your advantage to uh to hunt for them yeah and he's just killing it he's got the right combination of buzzer timing uh domain knowledge that's fairly broad and deep in like trivia categories and this strategy i think he's winning against sometimes stronger overall players who can't master this strategy because right. he's throwing them at it. So yeah, it's very money ball and it's, and it's great. And I think the thing is he comes across as a little affectless on screen because, you know, I do this when I'm thinking really hard, I go slack and he is playing the game. So there is this like this geeky and often, you know, Asian guys, so there's been some racism is, is winning the game. And it's like, no, he's, he's really, he's very funny. So his, his Twitter handle is Arthur underscore affect. And I think it's hilarious because he's clearly making fun of like the affectless, you know, uh -huh. thing about it. But he's very funny on Twitter. He's very personable in the interview. And, uh, and you know, for all we know, he's just won like 20 more games because it's, you know, right. he taped months ago. So he can't talk about it. But uh, he's, it's very, it's enjoyable. I just like watching people. He's playing the game wrong. It's like the point of the game is to win. It's not to, you at home may not like what he's doing, but I thought it's great. Right. He's the fun. other thing that Ken Jennings pointed out in his piece on him is, uh, in addition to the fact that it's to your advantage to get the huge advantage to get the daily doubles, um, it also, by skipping around the board from category to category, 
it gives you an advantage over your opponents because you know if you get it right where you're going next and you're yeah. ready for that category, whereas your opponents are, don't even know which category to be thinking about. Whereas if you yeah. play that traditional way uh, and somebody picks you know, potent potables for 200, even if you don't buzz in and get it, you're ready for the next one to be potent potables for 400. Yeah, it's totally true. And so it's just, but it's an interesting thing. It plays into the game theory thing, and and uh, people have their own preset notions about what they they want. But I, I you know, I I'm enjoying I'm enjoying watching it. My boys and I are watching him play. It's very fun. Yeah, it reminds me. Um, it's like anything with game theory, but like one of my favorites is uh, the history of blackjack. Yeah, um, where blackjack. It's kind of funny because it's like the rules date at least back to the 1800s and were apparently, you know, came about without the help of any sort of computer modeling whatsoever. And without computer modeling, there's really no way to tell what the the perfect strategy is and whether the house actually has an advantage or not. Uh, and so for decades, decades and decades, you know, through the – until the 1960s uh, – typical players in a casino, like what was considered, here's the right way to play, actually were playing at a tremendous disadvantage to the house. Oh, yeah. Um, the basic gist of the way most people played in a casino, and, and if you, you know, and if you sat down and were unfamiliar with the game and were sitting next to somebody who was a, you know, clearly a seasoned blackjack player and, and asked for help from him, this is the way you would learn to play, is that you should never bust. Whenever you mm. get to... Uh, 12 or 13, you just stop because you could bust and busting is an automatic loss. And it's, you know, it, you know, the dealer just takes your chips and it doesn't matter what the dealer does. You know, that's part of what makes the game a little complicated is if you bust, the dealer takes your bet and it's gone. And even if the dealer subsequently goes on to bust, right. you don't, you know, there's no tie in that situation. Uh, even though in theory, it's a tie because you both busted. And so that's so devastating that that players, you know, developed this, you know, it was, it was just a traditional strategy. Never, never, never take a card if you can bust with the pot, you know, and then some people would play, well, maybe if they had a 12, maybe they would hit on 12 because it would take a 10 to bust. Um, but it ends up that's a horrendous, horrendous strategy for the player. And this guy, yeah, Edward Thorpe, who worked at, I think, IBM, he was, he was like the first guy to beat the game. And he did it with not by like working it out. um, through formulas, but just through brute force computation that he just programmed, um, you know, a simple game of blackjack and just ran it millions and millions of times, you know, given this hand, you know, if you play this way, what, you know, what happens and came up with, you know, the basic strategy. And it's, you know, it's very different from that. But what happened then is players who had read Thorpe's book and Thorpe also, you know, invented card counting, which gave the play actually gave the player, you know, an advantage of two, three percent, which yeah, know, which is huge. But even without the counting part, even just the basic strategy where you could just learn these simple rules. If you have a 14 and the dealer has a 16, you stay. If you have a 15 and the dealer has a 10 card showing, you have to hit. Um, the players who had that strategy would do very well. And before the casino sort of adjusted their game, you could maybe even have a slight advantage in the, in like the sixties, you could actually play the game without counting mm -hmm. cards to have a slight advantage. But it, it was like a social thing though, where, where if these other guys at the table were playing the traditional way, and then there's a guy who who's actually playing the mathematically right way, they, they would, some of them would get angry. You know, they'd be like, what the hell are you doing hitting a 15? 
You right, because it would seem to be random. It would seem to be, it, since it's counterintuitive, it seems like you're playing the game wrong. Right. Even though, I mean, this is this is the, the Indiana Jones moment when he shoots the guy. It's the, when he's got the whip. Like, you're like, wait a minute, that's not fair. It's like, oh, wait a minute. The point is to come out right. ahead. The point is not right. to, uh, you're there to play the game. And right. This is reality TV. You know, I watched some seasons of Survivor, and that was the thing that was fascinating. I think it all developed into a pattern eventually, but it was fascinating to watch somebody like Boston Rob, who was much reviled. He figured out a new way to to play the game a few seasons in and it transformed the game dynamics and everyone watching him had to play the game differently after that. But it pisses you off if you're in the middle of the situation right. because it's an evolving game dynamic in which everything in your head that you've built your strategy around is suddenly wrong and you hate that other person because they've changed. You're not playing the same game anymore. Yeah, because I've watched. I haven't watched the Survivor in a couple of years, but I did watch the first couple of years, and I do remember Boston Rob. Uh, he was great. He was the best villain. He was exactly who he was. Right. I mean, I think of all the people. I, mean, I think I watched four or five seasons. Who was the guy? Uh, it was like the guy on the very first season. Uh, oh, Richard Hatch. Uh, Richard Hatch, who, the guy who, who thought he didn't have to pay taxes. Yeah, he exactly. went to jail. <laughs> he really thought it because he didn't take the plea deal. He went to jail because he thought he was right. I, uh, it was hilarious. I'm like, it's really straightforward tax situation right. but he but he as the winner of the first series and you know seemingly played it pretty smart became like the well that's how you play the game yeah you, you know richard had oh, yeah then he came back and in the, the whatever the tournament was uh the, the all-stars thing a few seasons into it he comes back he tries to play the game the same way and he is knocked out like a few days in and his famous statement was, I was bamboozled. And it was like, no, the game changed. <laughs> right. The game changed and you're out, buddy. Right. You can't just walk around with your wing-wang th flicking at people and win again. <laughs> right. Well, and the other thing, yeah, he seemed unprepared for the fact that the first season, nobody knew, A, nobody knew the game, and B, nobody knew what he was doing. Yeah. Whereas yeah. when he came back for the, you know, what was it, like, a, it's like the jeopardy champions thing like survivor yeah, exactly. champions thing <laughs> oh it God, was ev that. clearly everybody there you know as a survivor player had watched the first season of survivor and was well aware of his you know he really needed like a new strategy and yeah. and did well, not have it you know there's this thing called the markov chain and i i talk i found out about it because of the game shoots and ladders of all things because someone wrote this hilarious i think shoots and ladders or snakes sort of it's called snakes and ladders someone years ago wrote this hilarious review slash analysis of that kids game looking at it from this uh, mathematical standpoint and a markov chain uh, is it's a uh, it's let's read the, the Wikipedia thing a mathematical system that undergoes transitions from one state to another in the state on a state space it's random things so the so it's uh, the next action is not followed upon because of the previous action and there are games that are the games that are most interesting are the ones in which it is. Uh, uh, there's not a predictable outcome based on the sequence of things in which you do. So in Shoots and Ladders, the dice are everything. It's really a game that teaches kids how to play games. But in um, poker, the number of possibilities are too huge. Even, even with co you know, card counting, they still become too huge to be predictable as an outcome from starting states. And so there's this issue about the tension between games that have Markovian properties and non-Markovian properties about which ones are fun or not because, you know, as a parent, you know, Shoots and Ladders sucks and Candyland sucks because they're they're um they're like they're what is it called chain non Markovian right so Candyland is the worst Candyland <sighs> isn't even really a game because it's entirely deterministic you know that there's a deck exactly. of cards once the cards have been shuffled and you've decided what order the players are going to play in 
it, it the the outcome is already determined. That's right. The di- there's a dice component to it, which is ostensibly Markovian, but the chained Markovian action is the right. each card is played in sequence. Uh, so right, it's just it and it's horrible, but it teaches kids how to. It, it's simple enough that it teaches kids how to play rules and follow the game, right. and um, and that there's winners. Oh, it's you know, a pretty horrible bad thing. game. Winners. I don't think. It, yeah. yeah, I don't. Horrible. Yeah, I think you can get a lot of those <laughs> lessons out of a better game. We never. I, I, we, we lucked out. Jonas never fell for Candyland. Oh we played for Candyland for too long, but now we're in Settlers of Catan, which is much better. Yeah. I, I, if anything, Candyland, it, 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 you have no choices, and there are devastating, you know, uh, bad cards. You know, like the you know, get the candy cane and send you all the way back to the beginning. Like, oh my god, we hate that it's so a, much. T- you know. I don't know. It doesn't seem like you get any good lessons out of it. You don't learn any strategy, and you learn that uh, you know it, something terrible can happen to you at any moment. It doesn't. It, it teaches you the essential hopelessness of life and what the, <laughs> what the working world is like as well. That's what it's, <laughs> that's what it does. Yeah, it's it's sort of a de- full of philosophically. It's a depressing <laughs> game because it's oh sort of God. like. Uh, you know, it's like going back to college philosophy 101 and, you know, do you, is there such a thing as free choice? You know, and in Candyland, there isn't, there is no free choice. It's, it reinforces that. It's like, this is, yeah, here's your elementary school and college and the job. And here's the house made of ticky tacky you bought up on the hill. And <laughs> this right. is your life, kid. This is the future. Right. It's, you know, like with sufficient knowledge, you could already, you know, you could predict exactly when and where you're going to die. And you're never going to get the gumdrop. Right. It's, only, it's only a piece of paper. <laughs> uh, do you ever play blackjack? Do you ever, you ever gamble? A little bit. I like the um, I like the instinct to want to win. Right. <laughs> no, it's a so deficiency. I enjoy it intellectually, but I kind of I just lose interest. I'm like, ah, this is fun, but I don't have any. I don't have any. Um, and, and weirdly, I mean, playing Jeopardy. Jeopardy is a different kind of battle, but I uh, I just never have. I don't have the. I can't stick to it. I'm kind of oh, this is fun. Now I'm going to wander off and look at that other thing. So it doesn't hit me for some reason. When you when you were on Jeopardy, did you uh, how did you, did you get daily doubles? Uh, yeah, I think I'd, I'd never, I didn't get a lockout. I was, a I was, um, so IBM researchers, you know, did this, uh, when they built Watson, one of the things they did is they did this, uh, one group did all this game theory and, and, uh, analysis. And, uh, they found that people who win Jeopardy fit into three categories. There's sort of regular champions, masters and grandmasters. And I was clearly in the regular champion category and like I eked out a couple wins. I'm happy that I won, but I wasn't like a natural player like some people are. So I did, I did Okay. I did okay. Well, that's the the daily double. You know, it, it ties in with blackjack because it is it's the one part of Jeopardy that's well, the final Jeopardy is a bit of a gamble, but you know, it's a gamble where where you don't know the question. You know, whereas the regular questions, it's it's a combination of skill, like your actual ability to recall the answer, know the answer, and physically to to hit the buzzer first. But you do, you know, you get the question. So it's not, you're not gambling. I mean, you do, and, and you can maybe say you are if you, you're only half certain of the answer and you're going to buzz in anyway and take a chance you got it right because you lose the money if you get it wrong. But the, the daily strategy is to never buzz in when you don't know the answer for sure because you then both lose the money you have and someone else is most more likely to get it. Right. And they gain it back. So you almost double the difference. Because you've, they've had it, they've had the time to think about it. 
Oh, I saw a heartbreaking one where someone misspoke and then the other person just buzzed in and got it. And right. they said almost exactly the right thing. Oh, I remember as a kid when it was newer, when, when, mm-hmm. you know, it, when it wasn't so ingrained in the culture. Uh, I mean, I don't watch regularly anymore, but it's been years since I've seen one where somebody forgot to put the answer in the form of a question. Whereas when I was a kid, that happened fairly regularly. And it, inevitably, somebody else would buzz in with the same answer in the form of a question and take the dollars. I know. It's sad. They, there's actually a, a tiny rule, which is in regular Jeopardy, in the first half of the game, uh, they will alert you and you can restate it. In double Jeopardy, you cannot. Hmm. If you say it uh, without it being a question, it's just automatic wrong. I to, is that a new rule? I don't remember uh, that. It's been kicking. Well, it's at least for a couple of years. I played huh. a couple of years ago. I know it's funny. They just, because then they're like, by the se- by the second half, you're like, if you can't get it, like, that's your problem. You're just going to buzz in and, and lose. Yeah. But you <laughs> have to, ha- you have to have the heart of a gambler though, to really play aggressively on the daily doubles like this. Uh, is it Richard Chu? What's it? What's Arthur, Arthur, Arthur Chu. Chu. Yeah. He's because you, if you can, the, it's more likely you already know the category. You may have answered questions in the category. So you know the kind of direction they're taking. And uh, then you could go all out. And so Roger Craig, who is uh, now the number th- four winner, because Arthur has displaced him so far, number four all-time regular season winner, Roger Craig, um, he won $77,000 in one day because he did one <laughs> daily double and then got another and I did it. And it made sense because he knew the category and he could have lost but um, because he did two da- daily doubles twice in a row. But it didn't – it's funny. It didn't um, – I don't think it was a bad game decision because he was confident enough and he could have, you know, he'd already won a bunch of money at that point. So there's a point where you've already won enough money. You've won enough days that like, you know, you're going to be in the term- tournament of champions. For you, instance, you, you know you're going to come back. You have to psychologically want to win more than you're afraid to lose. Yeah, that's exactly right. It. And be- there's something about that. Like where you're sitting in that position and you're like, I could get the highest score right. ever. Like, let's say I'm do it. you've got 13,000 and I've got 8,000 and you get the daily double, you, you know, a normal conservative person is going to think, well, I've all, I'm up by 5,000 already. I don't want to risk it. I want to stay up even if I get it wrong. Whereas it's probably a better game theory strategy to just go for it, you know, yeah, if, you're, if you, you already know, you know how the other players play. You know how you're doing. You look at the board. If there's time left, because you can you know win you the game right there on that play. Yeah, I mean, I lost. I did a true daily double. My, the game that I uh, that I lost, I had five grand, and I was getting close to the end. It was a terrible game. We were all playing it. We were all off, and I bet all five grand. And I said George Sands instead of George Sand. I will never forget. And Ooh. I lost it all, but I still came back. And if I bit, I got another daily double. I got two daily doubles in a row. Ooh. And uh, if I had said Sand, I would have won the game. Um, so but it was the right choice. It was it was a category I knew I'd answered. I think the other three or four questions correctly. So it was absolutely the right choice. And I lost in exactly the right way. It's never the right way to lose. I know. <laughs> Somebody has to lose. Two right. people have to lose. Uh, the thing that, that uh, just to finish the, <laughs> the thought from five <laughs> minutes ago on blackjack, uh, the thing that drives the blackjack players nuts if they think that they know the right way to play and somebody else is playing differently is that then after the guy plays wrong, according to them, whether it's the you know modern era, if you don't play the mathematical basic strategy or back in the 60s when people started to, and then the next card comes out and if it had been the other way around would have you know busted the dealer and everybody would have won or whatever they blame the mm-hmm. player as opposed to oh, as opposed right. to ex- you know like so uh uh you know let's say i've got a 15 and i'm i'm the last player to go i'm the, i've got a 15 and the dealer has a 20 
and it's 1968, and everybody thinks I should just stay because I could bust. But I know that I should. What I should do is hit because 15 against a dealer's 10. I'm probably going to lose anyway. It's a terrible hand, but I'm going to lose right. less if I hit. I'll lose less out of if I play the same hand a thousand times. I'll lose fewer times. Mm-hmm. So I hit and I take, let's say, a seven and I bust because I have 22. Now right. I'm out. Then the dealer turns over their cards and ends up, they, the dealer has a 16. And so the dealer has to hit and pulls a four to have 20 and the dealer wins. Whereas if I had just done what everybody thought I should do and stay on this particular hand, the dealer would have busted and everybody else who was still in the game would have won. Oh, I see. So statistically you're going to annoy people because that's going to happen frequently enough, even though you come out ahead. Right. And in specific games, you're going to be peeving people as a result. And most people don't, you know, they, they don't have any concept of, you know, uh, uh, statistical, what's the, what's the phrase? Uh, a, a large enough sample set to be statistically valid, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one hand, anything could happen, right? Some asshole could have a 20 and hit and get an ace to make 21. I mean, it's like the stupidest thing you could do, but, you know, right. sometimes it's going to work, right? One out of 13 cards in the deck is an ace. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't make it the right play, but then somebody will say, well, see, I did. if you won, it's proof that you did the right thing, and if you lost, it's not. Well, this is, this is where you get into insanity as people develop their theories and the theories, if they're not statistically valid, uh, I mean, it gets back to the money ball thing, right? Money ball is a battle between people going by their gut, which is often wrong and by the statistics, which, which are statistically <laughs> correct, right? right? I mean, you know, we, we ran this piece in the magazine and, uh, Philip Michaels wrote a great article, uh, we called, uh, three strikes you shout about, um, 10 years after money ball and what had changed in baseball. And there's tons of people who still reject 10 years later, watching the results of it, they still think everything is a fluke because their yeah. gut's right. They were in the big game, you know, the big show. They know what's going on. And um, so you you obviously don't know because you didn't play baseball and whatever. It's like, well, I'm sorry if the statistics are right. They yeah. are. And it, and it kind of sucks, but they, but they are actually correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, less, ro- less romance than statistics. Yeah, you still hear about that, that there's still like old-time baseball scouts who who just, you know, don't really look at the numbers and just look at how the guy looks, uh, you know, judge Eventually, they will be out. And there's uh, like, uh, there's little things too, like there's like a surprising, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of hard to measure because it's it's effectively subjective, but that better looking players, handsomer young men tend to be scouted higher than homelier players. Sure. Right. And it's, you know, it's just, you know, one of those ways, you know, that, that good looking people just have, you know, better fortune in all aspects of life. But even in like sports, they end up getting better scouting reports than, uh, than homely players. It's, it's a cross I haven't been forced to bear. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a site called Jeopardy Hotties, which cracks me up. But I want to tell you what's funny about it is it is, it is, I, I went to this site. And I was like, all right, I'm not on it. So screw you. Actually, there's a link to my Boing Boing article, which is funny. I don't, there's no picture of me. There's a link to my Boing Boing article. But I looked through it and I got to say, one of the nice things about it, it was non-heteronormative and it was non-gender normative. So the people that the person who had posted these pictures for years now, goes back for years, it is not like a only like a, like um, a certain aspect of societally attractive, uh, like blonde uh, women. It's all kinds of people. And I, and I agree, the men, the women, the people that are clearly of different, you know, uh, orientations and so forth. Like, it's awesome, actually, as a celebration of, a, of beauty across <laughs> a lot of different norms. But I'm not in it. God damn it. So it's obviously a terrible sight. 
I'll put you on a list of talk show, the talk show hotties. Talk show hotties. Yeah. So, uh, we were, you know, talking about Markov and all these statistics and whatever. I know you had some, um, Bitcoin questions. When I was on well, last, let, we were talking me, about, we, we hinted around it. Yeah. Let me do the first sponsor read and then oh, we'll yeah. get, dig into it because that's really why I have you here. I feel like it's, the whole Bitcoin thing has reached the breaking point and I need. This is all build up. We have to establish credibility yeah. in talking about numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is kind of related. It's an awful lot it's, of math. It's, there's a lot of there's gambling. Uh, our first sponsor is our good friends at Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. I love that slogan. Uh, it's built with easy-to-use apps that help you work with your teams. Uh, shared calendars, uh, private Twitter-like micro-blogs, uh, file sharing, and more. It's all on our website. You can go check it out. Um, but what they want me to talk to you about is SharePoint. So Igloo partnered with Osterman Research to study the challenges businesses face when implementing SharePoint. SharePoint is the Microsoft uh, uh, intranet product that dates to like 1983 or something. Uh, they built a whole page about it, and you can go see it. Go to this site, igloosoftware.com slash the talk show, and they'll know you came from the show, and then they have the white paper linked to there and the research. Uh, but there's five main points that they got from their research. Number one, SharePoint doesn't work well on mobile. Uh, Igloo has responsive web pages for all the aspects of Igloo. So everything looks great on any kind of mobile device. Any kind of cell phone with a WebKit browser is going to work great with uh, Share with uh, Igloo. Uh, second thing, uh, SharePoint is too expensive. Uh, third, it requires too many people. You've got to license it for a lot of people just to get started using it. Uh, and then the last point is that it ends up no one, no one actually uses it. It gets put into place in the, you know, from top down orders from IT department. And then with the, it's such a pain in the ass to use. What happens is the teams end up using other products anyway or going, you know, around the system to share just to get stuff done because nobody actually uses it. Igloo is a thing that your team will actually use. Um, they show you. Right? Just go to their website. They'll show you exactly how they do these things better uh, with actual case studies from actual Igloo customers and reports from analysts that prove it. Uh, they just won a product leadership award from Frost & Sullivan, and IDC picked Igloo to power their own customer community. So go check them out. And here's the last thing you need to know. It's free to use with up to 10 people and very affordable after that. Uh, so you can get started. Try it out with up to 10 people. If you only have fewer than 10 people, you can just keep using it for free. It's amazing. So go to igloosoftware.com slash the talk show and, and check them out. Okay. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. So I've been putting it off. I, I'm vaguely familiar with it. But what I need you to do, I really do, I need you to explain this to me like I'm a dummy because I kind of am and I, you know and I was good at math I really you know I mean I think I'm more mathematically I kind of kind of get the basics of the math but I, I don't know I feel like and, and it's it's clearly I mean it's maybe even with the the criminal stuff going on at the Mount Gox and the other place now uh, <laughs> it would still be in the news more and more, you know, it seems like it's a rising tide, regardless right. of those things. But then, you know, let's talk about that too. So well, let's start from the top. Okay. I think there's three things 
I think I can break it down to three things that you have to understand, all of which are relatively easy to understand, I think. Okay, so uh, Bitcoin has like, I guess it's, there's, let's see, three different aspects. One is that the Bitcoins themselves are just a bundle of cryptographic information of which the person who possesses it ostensibly has a secret that only they know about whatever quantity of Bitcoins are in a particular wallet particular address, as it's called. The second is that you only transfer Bitcoins to other people. You don't receive them. You only send them. And that is, again, a cryptographically signed transaction. And that ha- that becomes permanent in a way that I can talk about. Wait, but a, yeah, oh yeah, so well, you have a Bitcoin and you want to give it to me. So I never yeah. receive it? You not technically. What's interesting is a transactions are all one way. You always a transaction sends money from one address to another, and the Bitcoin addresses and wallets are sort of an interchangeable term. It's like a the the address is just like the destination, and it contains some some of Bitcoins from you know one Satoshi, which is a the tiniest current unit, up to whatever quantity you have. So uh, so I've got an address, and you send me money, and I send you money, but I don't receive money per se. But I can explain that. So, so there's, there's the Bitcoin address, there's a transaction, and uh, then there's this issue of how transactions become permanent, which is Bitcoin mining. And those are sort of the three pieces. And I think each of them, like when you lump it all together, it's like, what the hell? So the, fundamentally, what Bitcoin is about is um, decentralized trust. So no two parties in a Bitcoin transaction or in any aspect of the Bitcoin ecosystem need to have any implicit trust in each other. Like the system itself handles trust by using public key cryptography, which essentially assures that once you create a, so you create a public key pair and a public key pair uses um, one of multiple different formulas, but let's say it uses, um, you know, Whitfield Diffie is one of the people is the Diffie-Hellman uh, key um, uh, system. That works. And what you do when you create a public-private key pair is you're using very, very large prime numbers, and you wind up with two pieces at the end. So I don't have to, I mean, you can look up the details on Wikipedia, but you wind up with two pieces. And one piece is a private key that you possess, and you need to keep it absolutely secret, and no one else may ever have access to it. You don't want to store it anywhere anyone has access, because this private key proves your identity, the possession, sort of the possession part of it, like you being able to deploy the key gives you all the power over any transactions that involve that particular public key, public private key pair. The if, public key in other words, if you, mm-hmm. if you got your hands on my private key, you could send my Bitcoins to somebody else. Exactly. And, okay. and this is true. Like public key cryptography is used all over the place. It's the basis of SSL TLS used for um, web encryption. It's used in uh, SSH transactions. Right. In, one in the like same way. So for example, too, mm-hmm. if you had my private keys for SSH, mm-hmm. you could log into Daring Fireball over SSH. Exactly. And get, it's, on the, it's, get on the command line on daringfireball.net if you right. had my private keys. Yeah, and right. the notion with public key cryptography is that the public part of this you can be you can freely freely distribute it, and no one can. There's not enough computation power in the world over you know I forget how many years if it's the heat death of the universe still or or not uh, that would allow you to uh, use any known technique to reverse engineer and brute force attack and recover the private key. So that's why it's so resistant. Uh, it's an asymmetrical key system. And um, so the public key gets used broadly, like in any system, this is this is how uh, you can sign something with the public key. So you take your data and you uh, sign it with the public key and your results, the result is a cryptographic hash that 
only the recipient with the private key, only the owner of the private key can decrypt that. So it's a way for, it's a one-way method for someone to send you something securely that only you or the possessor of that private key can read. So that's how it gets used, you know, a lot of the time. That's true in web, you know, with web pages, when you do a web transaction, the first thing that happens is whole digital certificate thing, of which we've now found there have been some flaws recently, last few days, not just a go-to fail, but there's a new one that dates back many years and is also suspicious in how, uh, let's save that. Let's let's remember keep that in mind. Let's come back right. to that we'll after. Come back to that. But so, but the idea is that you're you you know you have you have information you want to pass. So so in general, the way cryptography is used is to secure a secret. And in Bitcoin, it's not securing a secret; it's proving ownership and identity. So, in the Bitcoin system, uh, uh, you know, there is no inherent value. What's the value is that uh, a set of numbers representing some quantity of bitcoins can only provably belong to a person who owns the private key that corresponds to that address that contains that number of bitcoins. So nobody else, uh, so no one else can do. Um, Anything with those coins, they cannot prove ownership because they cannot because a private key can be used to sign transactions that, by using the publicly available key, can be proven to only have been signed by someone who possesses the private key. So there's an absolute way to prove that you own a thing because you have the private key. And there's I don't think any other. There, I mean, there's some other cryptographic systems I should say that have things that are parallel, but there's no method in the real world that corresponds to that. There's no physical method, and you know, biometric identification is one of the things, but there are ways to fool that, and you can, you know, do the Kurt Vonnegut method and cutting off and pickling people's thumbs and so forth. You know, it was joked about with the iPhone 5s. Uh, so Bitcoin. The idea is that there is no way to, um, because of the process by which they're made, there's no way to uh, forge a Bitcoin. You can't counterfeit it, and you can't fraudulently transfer it from one party to another without the access to that first party's private key. So that so fixes a bunch a, of problems. If, with, I, if I had mm -hmm. a copy of a Bitcoin that belonged to you, now I have a, I can copy the Bitcoin, and I can have it on my on my computer. I can't do anything with it because I don't have your private key. That's right. All right. I mean, what's weird is Bitcoins are not stored anywhere at some level. Like the weird thing is, so let's get to the transaction part because this explains the next thing. So, so Bitcoin at some level is, it's a series of transactions. It's not actually um, like, let's look at it this way. The current banking system is ridiculous, of course. But so, and I, you know, I do things as weird as like when I was sharing office space with Jeff Carlson, he would send me a rent check because uh, I paid the rent for the whole office and he would go to uh, our credit union. He would fill out a thing. It would make a check and ship it from like the Midwest in an envelope. It would wind up at the office. I would take it. I would scan that check in a scanner, electronically deposit and destroy the check. And that's our banking system, right? right. So like that's the U S though. The U S I mean, the U S is, I mean, People that are our listeners in Europe are like, like what? Yeah, they can't believe. So it, they don't, yeah, I don't it, think most people in Europe. I, I most people our age in Europe have never even like sent a check. Yes, right, and so yeah, exactly. Like checks, and, and this is true in America. Checks have now uh, the volume of checks has gone way way down because uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, including electronic uh, direct deposit being encouraged um, for employers. But so let's do wire transfers. Easier case. So uh, because my my uh, credit union has added free wire transfers a couple years ago to from person to person stuff. So when I do a wire transfer, you know, it's just a ledger transaction. Is my bank 
has a record that it store, you know, it owns a certain amount of money and it transfers that to another bank and that bank agrees that, you know, yes, and that value is transferred. I, you know, I forget, I think the federal, the federal reserve is involved. I forget. There's like some weird thing, but like they're just transferring money, you know, numbers around, right? But there's no security in that process. And it's abused all the time. You hear all these stories about uh, money being transferred out, people's bank accounts, especially companies being hacked and money being transferred and Western Union things and checks being cut. The system isn't secure. But in essence, it is just that is it is a, a, a decrement occurs in one bank's ledger and an increment occurs in another. And that's the transaction. Bitcoin doesn't work that way. Bitcoin has this thing called the public blockchain. And this is distributed um, worldwide and it's gigabytes in size now. And it is a record of every single transaction that has occurred since Bitcoin went live like over uh, five years ago now. And the transaction ledger, if you want to figure out who owns a Bitcoin, you can trace back the address to its origin. And the, mo the current owner is the person who has most recently signed it with their private key that they they have, or I should say the person who has most recently received it by virtue of the coin being signed over with the previous owner's private key. So, uh, and, uh, and so I have an address, my address is, you know, one, two, three, four, A, B, C, D, E, F, right? And uh, you can transfer money to me at that address by signing a set of Bitcoins um, with your private key that corresponds to those Bitcoins. That transaction occurs, it's locked into the blockchain, and now I own those. There's no transfer from two points. It's recognized globally by analyzing the chain that I now possess those and have the authority to spend them in some way. And that's wild. That's very, very different than any monetary system or transaction-based system has worked before. Right. It's, it's definitely novel. Yeah, it's almost like a central ledger, except that it's not recording deficits and additions. It's only recording transfers, and that's what's baffling. So you have to have the entire sequence of transfers, uh, and the most recent transfer wins, essentially. That's what proves ownership. So this is where you get into the third part, which is like, how are transfers made permanent? How do they become a permanent record? And that's where you get into Bitcoin mining, which defeats some people because it seems so. it's so weird at some level. Um, and mining is the process of finding a, uh, so, so miners run now extremely specialized hardware that all they do is they generate tons of SHA-1 cryptographic hashes um, based on specific numbers. So the system works like this. <laughs> Let's see if I can do this part. Uh, people are constantly engaged in Bitcoin transactions and they generate these transactions to say, John, I'm going to send you one Bitcoin. So I use my software. It signs over one Bitcoin to uh, your public address, sign it with my private key. That transaction is then broadcast on the global set of peer-to-peer -peer nodes that are used by Bitcoin miners and other people involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Miners are constantly grabbing a set of transactions and they get a small fee, small to large fee, and sometimes no fee for each transaction that they grab. So they'll take, let's say, I forget the number, I think it's like a thousand transactions. They'll take those and they combine that with some other information that's unique uh, that's and, and something that's randomly generated, and they start churning away on creating SHA-1 hashes. So a SHA-1 hash, is a cryptographic hash, is where you take a, an input, it runs through this algorithm that performs a number of transformations on it, and the number that comes out the end is predictable. It's always the same based on the same input, but any change to the input, no matter how slight, results in a non-deterministically highly variant output. So um, if I put in uh, John Gruber into SHA-1, I get one thing. If I put in John Graber, the result right. is you cannot predict what it will be. It'll be so vastly different. And there is no known way to easily predict how 
to reproduce the same hash from different inputs. So I can't just create a slightly different record, create the same hash. So the act of hashing proves that I did it because you can take the same inputs, run it through the same algorithm and produce the same result. So <laughs> here's what mining is. Mining is you're trying to find a certain hash, but you don't know how to create a hash that matches that pattern. You just have to create billions upon billions of them. In uh, Bitcoin, you're looking for a hash that has a certain number of, of starting zeros. And the more computation power that enters into the Bitcoin ecosystem, because it's now a ridiculous amount, the harder the level of finding that number is. They keep increasing the difficulty. It's a dynamic thing that's reset every two weeks by the system. And you have to find like a, like a, a hash that's less than, you know, um, the number is incredibly long. It's however many bits long. And you have to find uh, a hash that has a certain number of leading zeros. And you could churn for, you know, you could churn through a trillion transactions and you might not find one that meets those parameters. Right. I, I've heard sense? It, I think so. I've heard okay. it described uh, not mathematically similar, but in layman's terms, similar to looking for prime numbers. It's a needle in a haystack search. But where you have in no, the same it, way, though, that yeah. like if you're looking for prime numbers, each one gets harder and harder to find. Because yeah, except well, this is random. Is the problem like prime numbers? You know what you're looking for, uh, like, and you don't. You, there's no. I think at this point they don't know where the next prime number is, right? There's no prime number space. In this case, there's a space of all possible hashes, and because you don't know which inputs will, there's two parameters. One is you don't know which inputs produce which hash, so you don't know how to predict getting one with a bunch of zeros. And the other is that you're taking a, a whole bunch of material as a miner and sticking it together, and it has to be that material isn't set by you. You can't define the starting point of the transactions mm. that you're mining. So, um, but it involves a ridiculous amount of computational power. Right. Um, the now, last time I checked, it was, I think it was 200 times the computation power of the top 500 supercomputers in the world combined are to used find, for Bitcoin, to, to find, to mine Bitcoins worldwide. Uh, and at this point, I've read that it, it's more expensive to power the computer that's doing it. Like you said, most of the people doing it now have specialized hardware. But like if I just put software on my like a brand new Mac and just had it start mining for Bitcoins, I my expectation is that I would spend more on electricity running the computer than the value of the Bitcoin it might eventually find. That's that's right. I don't know what it is exactly at this moment because the price of Bitcoins has fallen. But this thing about difficulty, like so, Bitcoin started on PCs, right? And then people got more powerful PCs and stuck more the mining. I'm sorry, and stuck more processors in. Then they started using graphical processing units, of course, because GPUs are very efficient at certain kinds of calculations. Then they started using uh, what are these things called programmable gate arrays, I think. I've forgotten the name from. There's a specialized term that are like a programmable silicon chip that you could program and get even more speed. Then they went to ASICs, you know, which are custom circuitry designed specifically to do SHA-1 calculations. Then the ASICs went from 110 nanometer process to, I think they're down to a 29 or something, 25 nanometer process now, whatever the smallest right. thing is at that level. It speeds up and speeds up. The, the efficiency ratio of power to calculations, not only can you calculate faster, but the power per calculation gets lower. You cannot compete on a PC or even a, a field programmable gate array, I think it's called, uh, you can't, against custom, like, 29 it, nanometer right. ASICs. In other words, though, that, that in just four years, we've, we've gone through several 
generations of computer engineering, hardware computer engineering, yeah, yeah. De- devoted specifically to Bitcoin mining. Yeah, and it's it, it's non-generalizable, to too. optimizing the hardware you. for this one specific oh, purpose. Oh, yeah. So here, I just found the number. Here's the number. So at this exact second, there are 355,000 petaflops. This trillion... No, I'm sorry. That's quadrillion operations per second. 355 quintillion floating point operations per second are being used globally to mine Bitcoins. And the top supercomputer in the world has, God, what is it? It has like uh, under 100 teraflops. So this is, this is <laughs> if you add them all together, I think you get 500 or, no, I'm sorry, you get like 1,000 teraflops. So this is hundreds of times more than the top 500 supercomputers in the world combined being used for this specialized purpose, consuming God knows how many gigawatts of energy just to find this needle in the haystack that lets them mint a coin. So when when a miner mints a coin, when they find this number, they broadcast their solution, their proof of work worldwide across the peer-to-peer network. It happens on average in less than 10 minutes, every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes, um, a new Bitcoin is found. Yeah, because they find, because on average, somebody finds it. In fact, what there are these consortia, because it, it was too hard for any individual to bear this. So there are groups of miners worldwide that band together, no one of which has more than, I think, still 20 or 30% as a consortium of all worldwide capacity, which is a whole other, there's another issue there. Um, and uh, so some miner in this consortium goes, hey, I found it, woo! And they broadcast it and get it out there. They need to get it out there as fast as possible, because someone else in the next microsecond might find a different needle in the haystack. The moment that's broadcast, it gets uh, they broadcast a block, and the block is a brick that's placed on top of the wall, and you're mortaring it in. And the brick includes a reward to you as a miner, which is 25 bitcoins, and that still, at current exchange rates, is not horrible. Uh, right now, what's the exchange? It's like 600 bucks. Now, where is that? So you get 25 of them when you find one you of these blocks? 25. Yeah, and every uh, four years on average, uh, that, that reward have. So it was 50 Bitcoins for the first four years or so. Now it's 25. It'll be 12 and a half in a few years. And this is part of the decreasing uh, money supply. Um, there's a finite number of Bitcoins that will ever be mined in the current protocol system, about 21 million. So you're a miner. You go, woo, I found one. But that's still, you don't win. You don't win when you find a Bitcoin. It's great. But then you have to broadcast this out, your block that has all the transactions that are in your block, and some other numbers and information, and it has to be accepted by nodes all over the world who then immediately begin calculating the next block. And each block is cryptographically tied to the one before it. This is the wonderful secret sauce of Bitcoin. This is actually almost more important than the public key cryptography that lets you protect each Bitcoin quantity's identity and and ownership. The blockchain is, um, it builds upon each transaction or each block. So, um, if you, so what can happen, and this happens frequently, is a miner in, you know, Africa finds a Bitcoin, they transmit their block out, and it's sent out worldwide simultaneously within some short period of time. Another miner has also found, based on the same previous block, they have found a new uh, a new magic number, right? And they broadcast theirs. So now you have two different chains, which have each have different ending blocks. All the rest are the same, going back to 2009 and Mr. Satoshi's initial deployment. But this they have variants. And what can happen, though, is different nodes on the Bitcoin network, because they're decentralized, can accept different chains. 
So you can have two different chains that are growing parallel, but one of them, uh, but they don't have the same information for the last block. And this can go on sometimes for one or two blocks. And at a certain point, one of them has provably shown to do more work. Like it's clear that it happened faster and more work was consumed. And then there'll be this reconciliation, which I believe is automatic, in which all of the nodes in the world accept the longer chain. That is the chain that has more blocks on it faster. Hmm. When that happens, all the variant chains, which may have one or two blocks um, uh, that are not the same as the one that's been accepted, those are discarded. All the transactions that were exclusively in those blocks and did not get minted into these new blocks have to be committed again into new blocks. And you see why this gets complicated. And so somebody who <laughs> found, found one of those blocks ends up with, with nothing because exactly, theirs right. was it rejected resets. because it was a smaller uh, chain. Precisely. And this is a, this is a process that's, that's um, actually, and this is part of the elegance of it is, you know, it's a little crazy at one level, but it is also a really beautiful idea that, that no one has to agree on anything. You don't have to go into a reconciliation, be which block, whatever. It's like, no, the longer block wins. And yeah, I think, yeah, I think whatever anybody would think about Bitcoin, whether you think it's really super, it's going to revolutionize all of digital commerce and maybe real world commerce and, and that it's, you know, maybe you think it's a great, even with the recent stuff, it's a great place to invest your money or any, or, or you think the whole thing is a goddamn ridiculous scam. Uh, I think everybody would agree that mathematically it's beautiful. It's a beautiful system. It's, it's gorgeously designed. If you disregard any of the currency or speculation part of it, you right. can just admire it. And the paper that, um, you know, so-called Satoshi is maybe a composite of multiple people, but is a uh, still is preserved his or her or their anonymity. Um, that paper is actually incredibly legible. I've read it and I am not a, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not a cryptographer and I, I, my math background is not deep enough to really, I don't know, maybe if I really studied it, I could get it, but it's actually a model of clarity about what's going, about what the intent is and how it works. And the, all of the attributes in that paper have, have persisted. And the idea is so, so you know, I mean, so now you, this is it, you understand Bitcoin now. This is Bitcoin is you have a, <clears throat> you have a quantity of currency that's protected in a public key, which we all understand now, public private keys work. And so only the owner of the private key can do it. A transaction uh, transfers value from one party to another. Miners make their money by doing these fiendishly large number of calculations, but they have to be on the winning side if multiple blocks are being minted at once of the, of the longest chain for it to be perfect. So here's the other part that's beautiful. And again, doesn't really relate to whether it's valid as a currency or anything else. Uh, but it, Bitcoin is a fantastic transaction system. If you don't care about the value at all, there is no contradicting it. It is a beautiful transaction system. So here's the deal. The amount of computation I've described is ridiculous, right? After a few blocks go by, you would need more computational power than exists in the Bitcoin network to go back a few blocks and create a new chain. So if the longer chain always wins... If any entity, like a consortium, controlled uh, more than 50%, and some people say the threshold is lower, but let's say just at the, the – not the practical level, but the theory, theory is if you own under control more than 50% of the Bitcoin mining capacity worldwide, you will always win. You will always have the longest chain because you can always calculate faster. You can outpace everyone else put together. So this would let you do things like distort the system and double spend and, and mess up transactions. You could do all kinds of bad things. The consortia don't like this. And so when any one consortium has reached um, a point where they're 
worried about having too much capacity, they voluntarily split off and break down or halt things or do all sorts of stuff because it's not in the benefit of the system's integrity, even for them, to wield that much control. They think it would destabilize the, the validity of the system. But it also means that, let's say a government entity, let's say Iraq says, we hate Bitcoin or Russia. Russia is probably a better example. Let's say Russia says, Bitcoin is terrible. Let's destroy Bitcoin. And, you know, Putin, maybe he's got whatever. They would have to spend an enormous amount of money, a ridiculous amount of money to build up the capacity just to match the current system. Then they would have to be out there minting like crazy and, you know, and be able to overtake everyone else in the world and continue that for a period of time. And also people would notice this is an anonymous process. They know where the traffic's coming from. They know what the addresses are. So there's really, it's not that there's no way for someone to subvert the system by gaining control of more than 50% or even a lower threshold of mining capacity. More that the bar is so high and it's so expensive now. It's just very, very unlikely. Mm. Um, one last, I, I want to keep going, but here's one last question I have about this before we do the next sponsor break, which is that my understanding, I mean, I think this is, I think it's common knowledge is that the, one of the other things about the Bitcoin system from the get-go is that there's an upper bound on the eventual total global Bitcoins that will exist, that at a certain point, that's it. The last Bitcoin block will be mined. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, this is um, this is the the I think it's twenty one. It's approximately twenty one million. It's just below twenty one million, and um, this is you know uh, Bitcoin is clearly influenced by Ludwig von Mises, right? He was the Austrian economist that affects a lot of people with specific the Austrian school of economic views. And um, Bitcoin, at one level, is a test of economic theory by not allowing um, there's no inflation in Bitcoin uh, per se, and you can't print new money. The money gets released at regular intervals by the by the miners, and um, uh, oh, I should also point out there's this thing I was mentioning that as as more computational capacity enters the system, uh, the difficulty factor is adjusted because it's the system rebalances to try to take about ten minutes between each block being minted, um, and if uh, and it, because computational capacity has been increasing so fast, it's more like seven or eight minutes, but if for, for instance, like uh, everybody involved in Bitcoin mining said, ah, this is stupid. And 99% of the people shut their equipment off. The difficulty factor then reduces. So everyone could be using CPUs again or whatever. So you're not you're not dependent on ever increasing computational. We could, we could just capacity. use papers and pencils. Exactly right. You could sit there and be calculating a SHA-1 thing by hand. So uh, uh, I, I mentioned that in part because the the coin creation isn't a factor of uh, right. computation. The computation is intended to keep production at a steady pace instead of having an inflationary thing where someone could suddenly be creating coins every five seconds is, and, and is, exhaust the system. Is there a layman's explanation for how there can be an upper limit, like how there can be a last Bitcoin mined? Yeah, they, the, the, the algorithm actually, or the, I should say, see, there's, there's the original paper that Satoshi wrote. There's an implementation that he or they created in the first couple of years. I, my understanding is very deeply involved before he disappeared. And then there's the Bitcoin Foundation and other parties that engage in, so, in protocol improvements and software updates. So um, I forget what it is. If it's 80% of the nodes in the Bitcoin network, or is it 50, not 50, I think it's 80, have to agree to a software upgrade. And then they roll it out and deprecate the previous version. So there have been changes and improvements over time. So right now, 
the the way the protocol works is that mining delivers 25 bitcoins every you know say 10 minutes on average or less um and the protocol states that on a certain point after a certain number of coins are generated uh, and you can see a table you can go to like uh, wikipedia has a table of it and we'll show you what the point is and actually estimate the date for when this happens, suddenly instead of 25, 12 and a half, and then in the equivalent of you know, roughly four years or a certain number of blocks, it's measured in blocks, go by, it'll be uh, 6.25, and then it will be 3.125, you know, and, and dividing so and so down, forth. yeah, exactly, it's an you know, infinite thing. And so you'll, you'll get closer and closer to 21 million and never quite achieve it, right. but most coins will be mined within, I think, what is it, 12 or 16 years, almost all the coins will be mined. And Got the question it. So in other is, words, it's sort yeah. of like a calculus thing where, yes. no, there never, may never exactly be a last Bitcoin, but it eventually it'll approach this limit of 21 million right. and some, and it'll and, get ever and ever closer and, and there'll be ever so fractionally less value in getting a, a, a new Bitcoin. And, and here's a, the last thing for you this much, big. So here's, here's the thing that what's, what the system people involved in the system suspect will happen is every transaction can have a mining fee attached. And I think some must have a mining fee attached and others can be done for free. However, miners preferentially take transactions that have fees attached. They're not required to take empty transactions and typically those get queued and may wait longer before they're permanently committed. So this is an interesting bit of uh, like microeconomics. I don't know if it's microeconomics, but it's a bit of like a micro scale thing that goes on is I'm sending you money, John, but I don't want to pay a mining fee. So I mark zero on that. It, it might take like a couple hours for it to get baked in or maybe even longer sometimes and until it's baked in and then more blocks are added after it it's not really permanent so that idea of instantaneous transfer is true except that until the transaction is permanently baked into a block and at least a few blocks have been added after it to ensure that the chain is the correct chain we we can't really count that it's true there there are some ways around it and some predictability for it but what the idea is that over time those mining fees will increase so that as the reward decreases, people will have to pay more uh, per transaction fee, which right now is kind of the argument that Bitcoin has no transaction fees. It does not have required ones in most cases, but transaction fees will be likely much smaller compared to, say, credit card transaction fees or wire transfers or other, especially international money transfer. But there will be an increasing number of transaction fees that are given to miners to keep them actually engaged in the system and making new blocks. Even it's, when the reward is 0. 0.00001 Bitcoin, you need like miners a, to make blocks. It's like a uh, uh, a working example of, of uh, free market economics. Yeah, right. yeah, because because if you can't get your transaction no, put into a block, no you have to raise the fee. fees. No mandatory mm -hmm. fees. You can just put it out there, and if somebody wants to, they can verify it and put it in a chain for free, or you know, with no fee. But if you want to motivate people to uh, prioritize your transaction, you can offer them a fee. Yeah, and if it's high enough, they'll choose to do it, and then it'll, you'll get priority. Yeah, so it and there really, probably will be some. There will be some mandatory fees, very likely, but they'll be exceedingly tiny. The mandatory ones when those kick right. in, and this this sort of you know pure free market economics at work, you could see how this draws libertarian minded people to the whole Bitcoin world. Yes. Right. Uh, let me take a break. We'll come back. There's more I want to talk about Bitcoin. Um, but I want to do uh, thank our second sponsor, and it's our good friends at Hover, H-O-V-E-R. Uh, Hover, quite simply, is the best way to buy and manage domain names. Um, 
you have a great idea. You want to get a domain name for it. You want a catchy, memorable domain name. Uh, Hover gives you everything you need to get the job done. They'll let you search. Uh, they have a whole bunch of top-level domains to choose from. Uh, it'll help you find the domain you're looking for, maybe give you suggestions on something close to it. Uh, everybody who knows when you search for domains, it's you know it's hard to find a good one. Hover makes it easy. Uh, all sorts of domain registrars, of course, have search like that. Uh, the difference between Hover and typical domain registrars, you, you just have to see it to believe it because everybody else, they're, they're trying to make money every other way other than just by selling you the domain names. You know, there's upsells on all sorts of scammy stuff, checkboxes you have to uncheck to get out of these uh, add-ons and follow-ups, all sorts of nonsense. The worst sort of business, uh, just it's, it's, it's a lot of them are just scams, honestly, and anybody who's ever used them will know it. Hover, is just straightforward. Just go. I mean, just go check out their website, and you will see right away that they just—it just doesn't even look like other domain registrars. No nonsense. Uh, they make money by charging you for domain names, and that's it. They have great, great, great customer support, uh, including something called valet transfer service. So if you've already got a domain at another registrar and you're unsatisfied with that registrar, and there's a very good chance that you are because most registrars stink, you can go to Hover, sign up, and their valet transfer service will help you or just do the work for you. You just give them access to your other registrar and they'll take care of all the DNS stuff, uh, all the stuff you need to do to move or transfer a uh, domain from one registrar to another. Uh, it's a great service. And for most of us, it's, you know, it, it, it's because we're not experts. Even I know I have a bunch of domain names, but I almost never move them or change anything to do with them. So I'm not a DNS expert. Uh, the people at Hover are. This is what they do all day, every day. So you're in great hands. Everybody I know, and I know I have a bunch of friends who've used this valet service. They swear by it. They just—it sounds too good to be true that you just sign up and let them do all the work for you. But it, it actually—that's actually how it works. Um, where do you go to find out more? Easy. Go to hover.com, h-o-v-e-r.com slash talk show, uh, and they'll know you came from the show. Uh, so happy to have them as a sponsor. Really. Um, just go check them out and uh, you'll be happy to. All right, back to Bitcoin. Uh, a couple of things I want to ask you about still. Uh, we should talk about why Matt Cox went dead too, but. Yeah, I want that's part of it. Okay. Uh, tell me about. So, so you mentioned that there may not even be one individual name set. It. it the credit for creating Bitcoin goes to uh, ostensibly a, a Japanese mathematician named Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody knows, and, and at the very least, it's a pseudonym. If it is one person, if it is the work of one person, it's Satoshi Nakamoto is apparently a pseudonym. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's the. Uh, well, it's weird because they're not anonymous. I guess it has to be a pseudonym, or they're not anonymous. No one has a f no one has proved proven who 
this person is or if a single person did it. There's a suspicion. And, you know, when you read stuff, you know often when it's the work of one person, the way it's written. And, uh, you know, I've read the paper. The paper reads like one person wrote it. So if it's a group, one person drafted it. It does not have the feel. And it's got a very specific style. It doesn't so have a, a feeling of a committee. Yeah. I mean, there's not, there's, and the statements aren't vague. They're very specific. There's a style to it. And this person posted, uh, par, I mean, and someone as, I mean, this is why it's suspected to be just an individual because this person was actively participating in the early Bitcoin discussions for years. And, um, you know, there's this typical thing. This is what happened with the guy who was arrested for, uh, um, uh, Silk, um, oh, what the heck is it Silk called? Silk Road. The Silk Road. Silk Road, yeah, the guy who was arrested in uh, in the Bay Area, uh, he had posted something. Man, what a nut uh, job that guy! Is. I know, but you know, and this is funny. This is like this is apparently a very common forensics t- t- uh, forensics technique. And I heard about it. I was like, oh, this is so brilliant. Why, you know, I, sh- I should have guessed, and I feel like an idiot. What they do is they look at the first time someone posts under an identity on some online thing, and then they trace back and see who fo- you know. It's like who followed them on Twitter, who referenced them, who linked to a website, who favorited. Like, so they went back and they found the Silk Road guy because there were fingerprints all over him pointing to the, the entity that, you know, he eventually became. Uh, and so that's how that's really a big part of how they found him was that. And, and you, it's, you have to be very careful about, about that. So anyway, the, no one's found that kind of thing with, with, uh, Nakamoto is they, you know, they, even though the guy posted, uh, you know, we assume it's a guy probably. So in other, in other words, you're saying that, like, if somebody yeah. wanted to uncover the Macalope go and it, actually the Macalope, I think predates Twitter, but let's say, or if somebody else created a Macalope like, you know, pseudonymous column. Yeah. You Who's know. the first person who retweeted it? Who's right. the first person who linked to it? Did you go to Tumblr and, 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 fa- you know, give it love at Tumblr, which is very clever. So no one has found those fingerprints and a lot of people have looked and uh, some very clever journalists have looked. I forget. There, is it Wired? Someone did a piece where they looked through a lot of likely subjects. They talked to a ton of people and they're pretty sure it might be this one person, but it's just, there's not enough evidence to show that it's them. Uh, the reason people care who Satoshi Nakamoto is, is because Satoshi Nakamoto has like 5 million Bitcoins, I think. Something like that. Is that the amount? It's, it's, um, it's some, hu- or no, I'm sorry. Is it 5% of outstanding Bitcoins? It's a huge number because they were the only person mining initially. And, right. um, so whoever that is has a ton of money. Like even with the current, you know, the, the drop to $500 of Bitcoin, this person conceivably has like, I don't know what it is, like a billion dollar, you know, $800 million, some huge amount right. of money if they wanted to convert it slowly into cash. Now, because Bitcoin, all the addresses are public, uh, people n- can watch those early Bitcoins and see if they get transferred, you know, to, to exchanges or cashed out or used for things. And apparently they're all very static. So mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's another aspect of Bitcoin is that all the transactions are done in public. The identities are not tied to the Bitcoins. A person's identity isn't, but the Bitcoins, you can see them move through time. And um, that's an aspect people both like and hate about it. Hmm. So you can so tell though, the somebody who owned... Like you said, maybe it's not five million. Maybe it's five million is probably too big a number if there's only twenty one million. I forget total. what it is. It's uh, it's a big percentage though. Right. It's um, let's just call it a million. Yeah, you it's know. a lot of money. <laughs> Somebody could watch those a million. You know, look at early bitcoins, and if a bunch of them start moving, you could you could safely assume that it's the ones that were owned by Nakamoto, whether Nakamoto is a group or some sort of entity or something like that. Exactly. But this is the part that to me makes it seem most like a a science fiction novel or film. Probably a novel because I think that the math is not as cinematic as, you know, like a novel could make it. <laughs> but either way, it's like a science fiction 
story is that there's a a a sort of heroic mystery figure at the top of it you know a, a, an individual who wrote this paper and made this system and then disappeared i know it's very cinematic in that sense right and it's you know it, it's it's almost now like a mythic figure yeah not to and, exaggerate in the least right that there's this mythic figure who created this beautiful system stands to uh be enriched personally tremendously by it if if they so chose and then and and was very like you said very very active at the outset you know it wasn't just like the white paper dropped and the system went into place there's you know i guess what was it mailing lists i don't know but there's a lot of you know online communication from satoshi nakamoto but then just disappeared yeah did, and they hand, handed it off did he did he write like a uh okay i said i'm out of here or did he just you know is there like you know is there like a goodbye letter or a, now i'm done i'm trying to remember i think they just stopped posting isn't that funny i you know, think i would know that it's uh I think that they just hmm. What is the oh man? It's so funny. I don't think they actually said goodbye. I think they basically stopped posting and then, um, but but it anointed. There was somebody. The person who's the the it's uh, what's his name? Gavin uh, Edwards, make Gavin something. Who's the head of the Bitcoin Foundation? Uh, Gavin Andr- uh, Andreessen, uh, chief scientist at the Bitcoin Foundation. So Gavin Andreessen, as I understand, I believe he was sort of anointed as the person to carry on the software work. But my recollection is that. Um, is that it, it wasn't like a, okay, and now I've done my work and I'm leaving. It was more like, like just stop posting. And, um, I found the numbers 1.5 million Bitcoins. And so that's, uh, that's like $800 million in today's exchange rate. And it was, and over it's five, it's not dollars. 5% of the ones outstanding. It's about 5% of the ones that will ever exist. Yeah. It's a little, right. A little more That's like seven or 8%, right? So it's, um, it's a, it's a big chunk. And there's, you know, one of the rumors is that, so here's the thing with Bitcoins, you have to keep that private key secure. Um, but if you lose the private key, your Bitcoins are gone forever. You can't spend them. You can't transfer them. I met a Bitcoin miner and he, we were chatting and uh, two interesting things. One is I did not know initially, um, but he was at a few months before he and I met, he was generating a significant single digit percentage of all Bitcoins worldwide. I did not realize how highly placed he was, which was interesting. And the other was, he said, oh, I've got to drive over there. It's completely dead. It is 400 Bitcoins on it. I'll never recover those. And that was at a time when I think it was, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars a Bitcoin. So he had like a drive that has like $2 million worth of dead coins on it by today's, and he'll never get them back. There's no, I mean, he's tried everything. He could spend, you know, $3,000 on drive savers or whatever. And so when you lose the key, <laughs> I wish you're I, we, we, I, they're not a sponsor this week, but <laughs> I, <laughs> we can we keep talking about too, them? Ba- too bad backblaze isn't a sponsor <laughs> this week. Back it's, up it's your a, hard drives, people. <laughs> You know, there are, there are issues about storing private keys for Bitcoin. So um, this doesn't get us entirely to Mt. Gox, but there's something called cold storage. And you transfer your private key. Either you've never had it on an internet-connected machine. You sign all your transactions on a not-ever-connected, you know, a glue in the USB port, Wi-Fi radio removed, whatever. Um, you generate all your stuff on a non-connected machine and then you sign transactions and you copy them out or you, t- I don't know, you type them, maybe you do have a USB key, but you're extremely careful and you move those to the public internet. And this is critical because if your private key is stolen, as has happened on a mass scale over and over again the last few years at multiple online wallet services and exchanges, 
if someone steals your private key, they can transfer their, your money to anywhere they want to. And, and the same thing. So the cold storage is in some cases, I understand some are actually printed out um, the key information. There's like a pile of paper as an additional backup in case the spinning media or SSDs fail. That makes sense. It's hilarious. Well, one, you know, uh, one of the coin services went down. I'm forgetting which one. Another one shut down and they did lose some number of coins, but they said almost all of their coins were in cold storage and they will be transferring them back to their owners. The ones they lost that were in live storage was modest and those are gone forever for whatever reason. They're, they don't, I don't think they've said yet, but the ones that are in cold storage are totally preserved and okay. Uh, so tell me about these exchanges. Why? What is what? What's the point of them? Well, this gets in the basic nature of like, you know, so John, what is money? Right. <laughs> have you tried to explain this to Jonah? I mean, like Jonas, have you said, has he said to you, I mean, he's no. old enough. Has he, yeah. Like, like what is actually money? I, I try to explain to my kids sometimes, like, you know, and they know that money buys things that can be exchanged for, there's a great line from, uh, there was a Beatles parody group called the Ruddles that had Eric Idle and some other people involved. And someone said, you're just in it for the money. And their joke response was, no, no, we're not in it for the money so much as the, the goods and services yeah. that money purchases. Right. You know, and it's I, Jonas is still at the point where it, money is like gravity and it's something he oh. accepts and understands the gist of, but that it's sort of, uh, it, it, it it's at the bottom of, you know, it, it, those why, you know, kids are so it's kid. The, the greatest thing about childhood is, is the natural inclination of almost all children to just keep asking why, why, why. And it gets, you know, parents, of course, you know, you get sick of it, but it's actually, it, it, it's, you know, it shows how, what a fantastic state their brains are in that they're seeking answers, you know, and they're coming up with the, you know, why, why, why gravity is one of those things that he's never, mm -hmm. he's never asked me about. Like how exactly is it that we stick to the earth? Uh, and money I think is exactly the same sort of thing. It's just there and he accepts it and never has gotten to the point where you wonder why. Well, I don't think, I'm not sure if the kids ask or we volunteer that we like to, as part of the series of parental lectures. No, but we at some point, what came up and it was like I tried to explain it and money um, sounds ridiculous when you explain it why does this piece of paper have value I'm giving you a piece of paper with George Washington's face on it and you can go anywhere and exchange it for something and people will always accept it as legitimate and that's ridiculous it's completely ridiculous right so yeah. when you start to explain Bitcoin to people about why there's value in it you're like all right this is just crazy like well and Bitcoin it was a little, crazy but then money is crazy too it was a little bit less crazy when, when you I, and I you know again not to get into the political aspects of it and I'm, I guarantee you with you know a technical minded show somebody out there is gonna be offended by what I'm about to say but it <laughs> it, it was a lot easier to explain when the US was on the gold standard. Yeah, and yeah, because you could say it corresponded to a specific amount of gold that had an ex The U.S. government owned a tremendous – or still does own it, but owned a tremendous amount of gold. Gold has, you know, a, a true – a real value on, you know, because it's a rare mineral that people consider to be beautiful and et cetera. And a dollar bill was the U.S. government promising that this dollar bill represents a dollar's worth of gold. 
You could always exchange it if you right. wanted to for that amount of money. Right. And that I, same. you know, my understanding, you know, and there's a whole bunch of, there's a, a, a you know, always been a, politi- a political fringe that thinks the U.S. made a tr- mistake getting off the gold standard and that we should get back onto it. And I, not that I think that that's actually a good economic theory. I think the explanation is that it appeals to many people because it's understandable. And well, it's, it's supposedly prevents inflation. There's a lot of reasons right. why people like it. It's inflation. It's a real thing. It prevents printing money. It controls governments. Governments can't go to war as easily necessarily because they can't print right. money. To, right. So all these things that a lot of people hate and they think that the gold standard um, could be an answer to them returning to it or having never. I, I just it. think a big part of the appeal is that it's it it's there's not it's there's no yada 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 dot 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 step in the middle which is what you have with our current system right well here so here's the thing the, the what fundamentally what fiat currency or like um God, what's the word for it? it's like cat you know cash money what what money printed by governments backed by governments has is that you can pay your taxes in it and the government pays its bills in it and i've ta- I talked to a bunch of people when i was doing the economist articles about bitcoin and, and fundamentally that's what a lot of them said was was it's the government's use of legal tender as a means of exchange not just that it establishes value um, you know, and there's there's the extra angle that some people want to talk about coercion. The reason we accept money is because the you know governments have militaries and they force us to. If you didn't accept money, you know you're backed by the police and the, by the above the police, the military, and you can go to jail. There's a penalty, you know, for how you use it. Um, so there, you know, you can get to a political argument and um, about that. But fundamentally, it's when you pay the American government, you ha- or most governments, you have to pay in the currency that they accept and they issue that currency to pay all of their bills. And so that starts a virtuous cycle that gives it value. Right. It's a barter system in which the government is the, is the, you know, I mean, dollar bills are, it is a form of barter. We just accept the value that the government puts on it. And, and the U.S. government, at least with some intervention, allows the dollar to float to represent what the market actually thinks it's worth as a means of exchange. So Bitcoin is weird because, and so that's where you get into the Mt. Gox and these other exchanges as one aspect of the ecosystem of Bitcoin is that, um, is that moving money in and out of Bitcoin. So it's one thing if you were a miner. In the early days, you could run like, you could, you, know, you could have been running like a Mac Pro and making coins and actually having coins to spend. And they might not have been worth that much each, but you know there was some people accepting them. There were, you could use it to exchange debts with some people. Um, but you need to move money in and out of the system. So there's no inherent value uh, as more and more merchants accept Bitcoin, which is still going on, like Overstock will accept Bitcoin through an intermediary, intermediary that establishes um, value for it. But um, the more you can buy within the system, less you have to transact in and out. But the exchanges exist as a way to take dollars and turn them into Bitcoins and or, or any currency and vice versa. And, um, you know, I set up with, so Mark Andreessen and I had this wonder, so Mark Andreessen, founder of Netscape, really interesting guy, a guy I think was, was seen as not very bright for a while about how he invested in what he did. And then it all started to pay off. And then everyone thinks he's brilliant. And I actually kind of think he's brilliant. I think he was uh, uh, so far ahead of his time as an investor that it took a lot, like with Paul Allen, where everyone thought Paul Allen was an idiot for about a decade. And then everything he thought would happen, happened. You know, satellite television and uh, everything. Paul Allen, just about. And so- Hell, the Seahawks <clears throat> even won a Super Bowl. I know, you know, he spent- <laughs> he put, <laughs> 
exactly. So, so I, love I mean, you can make a lot of like, money going back to like 1985 and betting people that the Seattle Seahawks are going to win a Super Bowl eventually. I know. So you could, so you could say this. You could say like in 2000, people thought Mark Andreessen and Paul Allen were not very smart, and in 2014, it's like pretty damn smart in terms of where technology went and how they made money. So Mark Andreessen wrote this piece because he's involved with. Uh, before I say it, I think it's Coinbase. And he's, he's, his, uh, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, they invest in, uh, Bitcoin companies and, um, it's part of, part of their, uh, you know, what they're into. And, um, let me make sure, I think it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's, he's invested in that one. I hate to say the wrong company because there's so many bit, Bitcoin, money. yeah, Coinbase. Yeah. Andreessen Horowitz put in $25 million as a part of the, um, or sorry, that was part of the, uh, lead investment was then, but it was $25 million a few months ago. So I go to Coinbase and I say, all right, I want to buy $50 worth of Bitcoin. And they're like, great. Okay. Verify some information. Do this. We're going to text you this thing. You should, and all right. So I'm like, this is okay. It's like setting up a banking thing, but whatever. And they're like, all right, uh, your Bitcoins will be available in like three to five business days. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is an instantaneous system. What's going on? And the problem is Bitcoin, despite a lot of claims, and I hear this from people who say it's incredibly liquid. Bitcoin is not very liquid when you want to go in and out of legal tender. And so exchanges exist to make that happen. But between banking regulation, where a lot of these exchanges, Mount Gox fell afoul of this, they have they actually have to deal with certain banking laws. In some cases, not all, depends how they construct themselves. Um, and there's like reporting requirements and whatever. Uh, between that and just some aspects of like how many people participate in the system, how you move the coins around to be able to exchange that value without being too heavily um, – you know, an exchange can't take so many bitcoins and pay out so much cash that they don't have actual legal tender on hand, right? That would be bad because then there could be a change in the volatile price of bitcoin, and they could be caught short, and there'd be a run on the exchange, which has happened essentially in, in multiple cases. Right. The same um, way uh, Nevada state law says that a casino must have the equivalent cash in the building as they have casino chips in oh my God. circulation. Which makes sense, right? right? It makes perfect sense. If because everybody it, in the casino all at once wanted to cash in the chips that they have in front of them, the casino is legally obligated to have enough, enough cash to cover it. And this is why the wonderful, the FDIC is one of the best agencies we have in America. I'm confident the former head of the FDIC, I am confident, even though she did not get her role extolled as much, she was not one of the boys in the room. Uh, so Sheila, what was her name? She, I'll find this. But it, uh, she is the reason that the entire American economy, Sheila Bear, in which she's left the FDIC now, she cut deals that prevented the U.S. economy from falling apart by keeping banks open. And she made that happen. And the FDIC said- You're talking about deposit, like at the end of 2008. Sorry, end of 2008, right. She, she despite everyone talking about uh, all, you know, Geithner and all these other people, she is actually the reason our banking economy did not collapse and we did not actually go into a depression. I'm confident. History will prove that because the the top of the, you know, name, the people on the top of the name are all these guys who did all kinds of crap and she actually just did the work. So anyway, the FDIC exists as an entity because we had bank runs in the, right, you know, the depression happened. Banks did not have enough money. Your money's in, you know, Mr. Thompson's house. And it's the, it's the, it's the Bailey savings and loan scene. <laughs> um, no, what's my money doing over there? Uh, so when you have a run to the bank, banks are not obliged to keep 100% of their deposits on hand. They lend them out and that's how they make money. The FDIC is the backstop. I know this is basic for most listeners. The FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, they accept, they take premiums from banks and they use that to have a fund that backstops a certain amount of loss um, uh, if banks go under. And the FDIC is out there closing banks down. It's kind of cool. Have you ever heard of the FDIC? They close banks down. 
No. It's cool. I think uh, Planet Money did a piece on it. They basically, they show up on a Friday. They're all dressed in plain clothes and they show all their credentials and they shut the bank down and they take it over and no one at the bank is allowed to talk about it. They spend the weekend on the books, whatever, and it opens on Monday. Huh. And, and it's like, it is like a, it is like a spy operation because they do not want to, you know, they'll come into town. I understand they like rent rooms at motels, not at the same motel. They do not want to panic people. They do not want to run in the bank. It's the accounting version of, uh, uh, like what a gangster movie would call the cleaner, right? <laughs> exactly. The FDIC. And that's what they do. And they do it. Like Har- Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, you, got these, you know, your sulfuric acid here. And- we don't want any attention. You know, no, no, not Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, when the guy got shot in a car and, you know, it's like, look, we just want to clean this mess up. Nobody's going to know none the better. Oh, man. Right? Uh, But it's, it's, yeah, it's with numbers, with numbers and ledgers. (laughs) We're cutting the bank apart into small pieces and we're melting them in the tub and no one's going to know about this bank. So I don't mean to make a huge digression, but the FDIC backstops banks. So if banks don't have enough money on hand, the FDIC is there to pay depositors up to a certain amount, which is huge. I know, you know, you're so small depositors never get, uh, and so people don't panic. They don't, there's no, we don't have runs on the bank because people believe that the U S government in the form of the FDIC will backstop banks. And we saw that in the 2008 crisis, there is no FDIC for Bitcoin and, and maybe right. one will be created. But when, uh, when there's a run on an operation an exchange has some amount of Bitcoins and some amount of cash and they cannot cash everything out at once. And they're not obliged to the way they're run. So, this right, gets well, us around. And, so and Mount, it's yeah. like you said that it's the government, it, you know, it, it, and, and it really does annoy me. And Marco had a good piece last week about it. It doesn't make any sense to talk about the government as a single entity and complain that the government is always in a way <laughs> and whatever. That the government is, you know, is comprised of, of thousands of individual uh organizations, you know, from the federal to the state to your municipal level, FDIC is a great example of the government at work. Because the main point of it is if you see a bank and you see that the bank is in the FDIC, and I believe it's it's probably not even legal to open a bank that's not part of the FDIC. You can't just, like you and I can't just open a thing and call it a bank. Yeah, there's all the, you have to, there has to be like a governing regulator. Right. There's different choices. The FDIC, you have to pay them insurance. But it means things. that all of us, every single citizen, can just you don't have to worry about doing the research and figuring out is this bank legit is you know if i go in there and put my paycheck and deposit you know create a checking account and put my whole paycheck in there is that money safe you don't have to worry about it it just is you really i mean all you have to do is have faith in the us government and at one point you remember for a long time the fdic said you know deposits you'd hear a commercial on tv for bank deposits are insured up to the maximum $100,000 by the fdic and then during the crisis, they lifted that amount. I forget to what, and I don't remember what it's at now, um, because there are enough people who like, you know, you're, right. my, this has happened. My, my parents sold their house and they had hundreds of thousands of dollars from the house, which they planned to live on for the rest of their lives uh, in the bank. And, um, you know, so they had more than a hundred grand in one account. And right. if a bank fails, you're only insured. In some other countries, they immediately lifted it to unlimited because they did not want any depositors to not be made whole. They felt it was a better risk to prevent a run on the bank, especially by high net worth individuals who might have a million bucks in an account, right. than to um, than to worry about the the problem of reclaiming that money later. And it worked out correctly. Yeah. It was the right move. And the limit, I think that that limit was pretty old. 
It, you it know, was. And, it wasn't that, inflation adjusted. Right. It was like a hundred thousand dollars, and I, you know, I'm going to pull the number out of my hat, but you know, nineteen fifty dollars. I don't know which you know is a far cry from a yeah. hundred thousand dollars and two thousand eight dollars. It's very easy for people who are in the you know age range from like fifty to eighty to wind up with more than a hundred grand in the bank because of house sales. Basically, they downsize. You know, you live in the Bay. I mean, I knew people whose parents lived in the Bay Area, and they got a million dollars for their house. They didn't ever expect a windfall, and they might have like a tiny pension or whatever, they don't even know how to handle that. So so there is nothing, there's no backstop. And so with Mount Gox, so Mount Gox has all kinds of weird things. Um, you may know it started as a site called um, Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, <laughs> M-T-G-O-X. Did you know this? this is I a did funny know story. that. Yes. Yeah, so it's funny. So they thought they were going to be, a ma- and, and what I read the other day pointed out that if they'd actually invested in magic, the gathering coins back when they started, they would, or, or cards rather, they would probably have had a better return than, uh, than what's happened. Um, cause some cards are worth like $2,000 now, but, uh, <laughs> so anyhow, um, so Mount Gox, uh, People have been documenting for years the deficiencies in their programming, their security, their response. They they had um, they didn't file the right paperwork or act in the correct way in the United States. And the U.S. seized I think it was five million dollars from them because uh, they didn't have uh, they were operating as essentially a kind of entity that they weren't, and they just didn't do the right work. Like I think they could have been operating as an entity. There are Bitcoin exchanges that operate in the United States that have filed the paperwork correctly, and Mt. Gox did not. So the the uh, it's still totally unclear what happened um, because they haven't released enough information. They claim they've lost what was the number? It's a crazy number. Um, it's like seven percent of all outstanding bitcoins. It is uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, over seven hundred fifty thousand coins owned by its users and a hundred thousand of its own. And the issue is we don't know what lost means yet because we it ha- they haven't done a forensics thing in Japan. They're, they're based in Japan. It's where their offices were. Um, it could be they lost all the private keys. Maybe right. they didn't do a good job and they're just and unrecoverable. Gone from the system. Right. Yeah. And there's some suspicion that there are potentially hundreds of thousands or maybe even as many as millions of Bitcoins that will never be recovered because the private keys are lost. There's no recovery process where they can be reclaimed. So that's one concern. The other is it might have been theft. Someone got access. Um, you know, one party was saying there's an article recently, a couple of days ago, about how uh, Mt. Gox encoded all of its SSH keys, like its private keys, in its server code, <laughs> uh, and things like that. So, um, yeah, so it's crazy. So, like, there, there's they just are not. You know, they're clearly without you know alleging anything. It's clear. They were not a, uh, a, a rigorously run technically programming they were, institution. Technically, technically, they were not competent. The yeah, other thing so, I saw was that, and again, I can't verify it, but I saw the other day that they apparently, you know, the whole system, the computer system, they were, were not using any sort of uh, source control software. Yeah, I, I saw that, and I was like, I so. Right. So there's, so they have all kinds of technical deficiencies, but so one suspicion is there's this problem called transaction malleability that, um, is suspected might be the cause. Although I read a really good analysis a couple days ago that, that suggested that at the scale of what happened, it couldn't be. So there is a flaw in Bitcoin, um, in the Bitcoin software clients and some of the implementations, as I understand it, it's not a protocol flaw, but, um, well, I shouldn't say so this transaction thing I was talking about, what, what should happen is, I'm sending you one Bitcoin, John, and the transaction that my software generates, which probably uses a standard Bitcoin library that the Bitcoin Foundation essentially maintains, even though it's open source, 
that transaction transaction has a transaction ID and some unique information and I've signed it and boom. So what should be impossible is for someone else to generate a transaction that is looks like mine and is and is um, uh, validated and even has the same destination. So it doesn't hijack who the money is going to, right? It just looks valid and has the same uh, recipient and sender. That should not be possible. And it is in fact possible to create fake transactions after a legitimate one is created. So other parties can illegitimately create bad transactions. And there have even been denial of service attempts where many bad transactions are created for each good one. If the bad transactions are taken up first, they get baked into the record. And um, the problem is some software didn't validate whether the transaction ID had changed. And if they'd note, or I think it was just the ID. And if they'd noticed it had changed, it would have, uh, invalidated that transaction or some other aspect there. Like, so, so the coins are actually transferred, but the exchange, for instance, in this case would not recognize it because the transaction ID didn't match. So I've done everything right. I've sent you a coin and you say, Hey, I never got it. My exchange say it says it didn't go through. And I look and I'm like, my software says it does. I'm looking in the block. The block says it was minted. And you say, no, my exchange says it never went through. And you go, oh, okay. And Mt. Gox apparently had an automated system that when a transaction appeared to not go through, they would send it again. And hmm. it's unclear how often it would send it again. So if you were a malicious party, you could concoct away in transactions with Mt. Gox to create false ones and get the same money multiple times. But because you can't change all the parameters, you can't just steal the coins, it's more a way to leak money out from transactions that are... Um, that had some legitimate basis to start with. And then you can sort of suck money out or people unintentionally send more money than they meant to. And the recipient doesn't even know that more money was sent. Um, so that was one suspicion. It does not appear like that. The scale of it would make sense. It's more likely their bad security led to someone stealing all the private keys. Well, what's the solution to this? Uh, you know, how, if somebody wanted to get involved and, and buy some bitcoins and have these, what, I mean, I guess the solution is to find a, a reputable and technically competent exchange. But how, how, how is a normal person supposed to figure out to determine what is a reputable and technically competent exchange? Well, I think this is what the, the market's trying to do now is, you know, even though the valuation of Bitcoin is arbitrary, there's enough people involved in the system using it that the, you know, even with Mt. Gox failure and, and all this stuff happening, um, the value has not... Uh, I don't know when, when we're talking right now. I should say that. Let's make sure it hasn't crashed. I'm talking in the values at zero, but uh, the um, <laughs> that would be bad. Um, but the 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 market didn't go from you know a thousand dollars of Bitcoin to uh, to zero. You know, it went from uh, yeah, like I'm looking right now. The, the current exchange rate, as we talk, is somewhere in the six hundred dollar range. I actually think, and again, I I, I am a, a Bitcoin dummy, but as an you know, and I've never put a nickel into it uh and still i'm not tempted to but just as a curious observer i would actually say that that what's happened to the value of bitcoin in the last few weeks actually shows a significant amount of stability you know like going from a thousand to 600 is a pretty significant crash but not what i would have expected when i first heard about the mount gox thing i thought well there it goes that's the the toilet flush you know bitcoin's going to drop down to you know 25 dollars a bitcoin 
should have happened if it had actually been a fatal event or a near fatal event is the value shouldn't have just gone off by like 50%. What should have happened is people would be trying to get liquidity out of it. They would have been unable to, and they would have accepted lower right. and lower amounts until it was like $10 yeah. a Bitcoin and, and the market collapsed. Right. Instead, it went down to like, I don't know, 500 and it's rebounded mm. a bit, which means that there are people who believe they have enough value in the system and retaining their Bitcoin in the system that they weren't panicked and tried to exchange right. it out. And I know, you know, and I've sort of avoided linking to a lot of the Bitcoin stuff because I just don't understand it. But I know that there's a lot of, you know, a, a sort of, hey, this is actually a good thing for Bitcoin. And then there's, you know, the skeptics, which I kind of agree with. It is no, this is not, Mt. Cox is not a good thing for Bitcoin. You can't argue that. I, I think it's it's sort of halfway in the middle, which is no, it's not good that it happened. I mean, and, and no matter whether it was crime or just incompetence, it's bad either way. But the fact that after this bad thing happened, which was bad, that it was relatively stable value wise, I think sh is a good thing. It shows that you know there's a certain stability to it. Yeah, after all the volatility, I think this was actually pretty remarkable. And some of that comes now because you have people like the uh, the Winklevoss twins who have put a pile of money in, and they own, I forget what it is, they own a single-digit percentage of Bitcoins, and there are other parties. Um, I mean, so this is, this is one of the things, stat came out the other day, I think it was, uh, was it uh, a few hundred people own 50% of all hmm. Bitcoins. Uh, and which isn't, un it isn't strange, but Bitcoin as a democratizing thing, you're like, oh, Okay, you know, and then like, uh, I think it was like a few thousand people own 75%. So there's this issue about, um, oh, I was mentioning earlier, so Mark Andreessen, so one of the companies you could look at, and I have no connection to it, and in fact, might even be seen as a skeptic because uh, I had all this back and forth with Mark Andreessen, um, who is incredibly funny on Twitter and a really great sparring partner, by the way. He is really a good sport and will talk about all this stuff, um, which is impressive because most people who have piles of money and think they know everything and they don't want to talk to anybody. And they don't listen. He listens and he talks and he's very funny. And so he wrote this uh, op-ed-ish piece for um, the New York Times, like the deal book section, um, about why Bitcoin was so wonderful because it reduced transaction fees to practically nothing or nothing and it would be a great thing for all these parties. And I, I disagree with a bunch of his statements. I wrote a long thing and he and I went back and forth and it was very – it was elucidative to me, his thinking about how you make Bitcoin into a stable – thing that just becomes part of the international banking system. Like he is not a political rabble rouser. What he wants and the Winklevossi, Voxy, whatever you call them, and the, and the rest of the folks who are trying to make this work is they want a, a system that's outside the inefficiencies that, ha that has the security of Bitcoin is outside of the inefficiency of the banking system, but doesn't need to be above the law and not subject to regulation and scrutiny. They basically want something that makes money move as fast as email. And I get that. There's a there's a good thing. So Mark's invested in his his group in Coinbase. That's where I put I put fifty bucks in. And you know why Bitcoin dropped in value half? Because I put fifty bucks in. <laughs> it's now worth twenty five dollars. My fault. It's like washing your car. Uh, so Coinbase is clearly a place to start because they're trying to do everything right. Um, and they're you know they're not trying to be chartered in a boat off the coast of Iceland and under Somali law. They're trying to do it. So it's an interesting place to start from a group that's trying to see how they can comply and work within the system. Um, what's the related thing? Oh, so Quentin Hardy wrote this piece based partly on Mark and my exchange. He wrote this thing for the New York Times. I recommend reading in which he talked about the rise of a kind of super rich transnational class. He said, I threw down, he said he was sitting with some very, very wealthy people. And he said, if I threw down passports from, was it three or five countries, all of them stable, like Singapore, United States, whatever, which one would you pick up? And the guy started to debate which one. 
They didn't say the country that I'm from. They didn't have a nationalist influence. He worries in part that Bitcoin lets people become, it takes money outside of the um, sphere of national influence and make, it lets people who are extremely wealthy sort of live in a cloud above the world. And so there, there is some of that thinking, especially when you see that you know, Bitcoin is controlled by a relatively small number of people. That control by a relatively small number of people is one reason why the currency remains stable, because they have the economic wherewithal to not need to pull the money out of the system at a low valuation. I would say this, though. I mean, and who knows where the eventual value of it is going to go. Right now, though, at $600 a Bitcoin, if there's a limit of $21 million, that's somewhere around $12 billion for every Bitcoin that could ever be. And even if you double that or triple it, you're talking $25, $50 billion. Now, who knows? Maybe it'll go up tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold, and then become worth more. But as it stands, a a system where the entire the entirety of Bitcoin is only worth ten, twenty, thirty billion dollars, I don't see that as a globally dis. You know, it. it I, I can see why governments aren't that ready to jump in and try to regulate it. Well, it's right because you need you need inflation within the Bitcoin system to make the coins right. valuable enough. Individually, and they can divide them into tiny pieces. So That's my next question. Is explain worth, to me yeah. fractional bitcoins. Oh, how is that? How can you yeah. put fifty dollars well, into Coinbase and have anything? Oh, yeah, if yeah. A bitcoin is this worth six hundred bucks. This is the ridiculous part. So it's almost like it's like owning a fraction of a share of stock at some level because bitcoins are only essentially. I don't know if I'm using the right term, but they're forward transactions. I can only send you money. So if I have fifty bitcoins in a uh, in my wallet and I want to send you. Um, 49, I have to do a change transaction. So I actually send you 49 and I send myself one. And this is the way, the fact that I have to send change to myself, there's a flaw in most current clients that makes those transactions essentially trackable. And researchers have shown they can do this thing that even after hundreds of transactions, they can actually track back Bitcoins to the origin by unpeeling all these change transactions and seeing where the money went. Uh, so uh, I can send you a tiny, tiny amount. I can, so the current smallest unit is uh, uh, one times 10 to the negative eighth. And I forget how it's eight, zero, seven zeros and a one. Um, and that's called a Satoshi. It's the basic unit of Bitcoin. And the protocol could easily be adapted to have smaller fractions um, or even reverse it. So like, you know, one Bitcoin is a Satoshi or something. Uh, there's no, um, there's nothing that prevents that from happening. <coughs> but that lets me send tiny amounts of money. But I send essentially, and the thing is people can wind up with all of these wallets. Like you can have, piles of Bitcoin addresses, and then eventually you might consolidate them. So you take one address that's got 43 Bitcoins, another has one, another has 0.05, and you essentially pay yourself all of the small ones, and you wind up with one address that has, you know, 750,000 <laughs> Bitcoins in it. So there, there's a lot of monkeying around, and people typically use client software that handles the details, but the client software masks a lot of transaction that can uh, leak some of the anonymity involved in it. Um. There's also, we didn't even talk about Dogecoin. You know about Dogecoin? I've heard of it. I, I don't I think get I'm kidding. It. So, and Ars Technica just launched Ars Coin. Dio, Dogecoin and is D O G E coin. Yeah, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It actually is, it has value in it. Dogecoin was a parody. It was launched two months ago in December, or three, almost three months ago in December. And, um, or two, sorry, two months. And, uh, uh, people are investing in it. It's, it's got different properties. 
then it's it's a code fork from Bitcoin, which is open source, um, and it has different properties, including a mining technique that does not consume eventually the power of our sun to make new calculations. Um, it's got a non-scaling. I think it's using a S crypt or B crypt or it's got some, anyway whatever it's using. It's using something that does not require the scaling capability that you need to do uh, more SHA-1 transactions. Um, and um, and there's uh, Litecoin, which is a different crypto standard, a crypto coin standard. Um, there's something called ZeroCoin, where one a guy who's a researcher who wanted to create pure anonymity that you could put into Bitcoin after being sort of rebuffed about embedding it inside Bitcoin, he and other folks are going to launch a Bitcoin-like currency that will allow Bitcoin-like coins and totally anonymous coins that no two transactions can be connected to one another to be exchanged in. So there's all there's an explosion of cryptocurrency as well. Dogecoin is the funniest one, but because it's it's real, people are using it. Started as a parody. Yeah, and it turns out that like it's actually got some properties people like, including um, it, the uh, the initial. It's they they set the number very funny too. So it's like the initially a hundred billion coins can be mined by the end of this year, but then it's a fixed rate of 5 billion coins after that. So there's a built-in inflation in it. It does not shrink over time. Uh, You're losing me. (laughs) Well, there's no top limit on how many Dogecoins can Uh, be minted. I see, I see. I know. It's crazy, but it's crazy. Some of it, it's sort of funny and it's sort of weird. But so this gets back to, I think, some of the points that you had earlier. And it's, is that... And some and this point I like to make, and I'm sure everyone listening to this, no matter whether you're in Europe or Asia or America, banking is ridiculous. Banking is ridiculous. Banks exist to, to the banks exist to extract fees from us, and they run the most insecure system in the world. The most secure system I think is like chip and pin is yeah. actually uh, and wide use in Europe. Like that's great for doing that kind of transaction, but like wire transfers are totally unsecured. Stuff's passed in the clear. ATM. Has ATMs have certain kinds of encryption and security that are really good, others that are ridiculous. So, and, and you can't, you know, when you get a, a dollar bill, you don't know if it's real. Uh, what percentage? There's some number about the percentage of hundred dollar bills in circulation in the world that are that are uh, counterfeit, fraudulent. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So the 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 fact is, Bitcoin and systems like Bitcoin, the they something like it will get incorporated into the banking and transaction system, if not into our currency system, because of this property that because that the cryptographic nature of it prevents a whole bunch of bad behavior, it prevents double spending, it prevents counterfeiting. It prevents, um, it, it allows a certain kind of legitimacy and ownership. It's very hard. I mean, so people have hacked into these exchanges and wallet services and stolen private keys, but if you do security correctly, which people can do, then it doesn't matter if you get hacked into the keys are still protected by another layer of passphrase and they're unrecoverable by the thief. So there's ways to do it correctly. And so this could be a way where instead of doing a credit card transaction, the way we do now, which is, you know, ridiculously unsecured and you just need the number sometimes to, to find your zip code. Right. Yeah. You can can do it over the phone that you'd be able to. Yeah. So what if, you know, what if visa released a web-based, you know, signing thing that used, uh, that let you use a, something that was very much like Bitcoin, but it was entirely in their system. You'd love it because you'd say like, oh, thank God. Like verified by Visa, which I think is still in use. You'd go to a merchant, it would pop up a Visa window and you could check that it was a secure connection to Visa and you'd punch your password into Visa's site and it would then confirm that you were legitimate, but your password never right. went to, it was like an extra step. And that was sort and of it, cool. It, it's reasonable to me that you that we could change the credit card system so that you couldn't uh, uh, 
do a transaction over the phone in the same way that we accept mm-hmm. that you can't send cash over the phone, right? Like if I owe you 25 bucks, I, there's no way that I can do it right now talking to you over Skype. There's no number I can read to you that could do it. I think it's reasonable that we would lose the ability to call a, somebody over the phone and give them a credit card number and have it count because our phones more and more are computers with an IP connection that you can run an app or connect to a website and do cryptographic communication. Well, it, but it could even be as simple as, you know, like two factor kind of thing is I could be registered with different coin systems or credit card systems in my phone and I call to make a transaction. They're like, great. Okay. We'd like to process that. Can you read us the six digit number that's just been texted to your phone or run the, you know, Visa authenticator app and you pull that up and you go, it's sick, blah, 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 blah. And that verifies my identity. Or at least, you know, if I've stolen information, I've stolen a lot of information from somebody. It's not just a routine drive by credit card theft. And, but so there's lots of aspects of Bitcoin that I believe this is why, you know, they had a, um, Congress had hearings, uh, I think it was late last year about Bitcoin and a friend of mine attended them and he was stunned and, and the coverage indicated this as well at how positive and interested senators and staff or senators, uh, staffers were and, and congressmen and women were about, um, the positive aspects right. of it. And the banks are very, very interested in it. And the regulators are interested in it. They don't just want to, prevent activity or capture tax. Well, that's certainly part of it. It's also that um, they do actually see the positive parts of having a cryptographically robust identity uh, secured system that we don't have now. And so that's kind of cool. I did not expect to see that much openness. And you know, the people who are core Bitcoin users hate the notion, typically, that government would get involved. The new people coming in, like Andreessen and the Winklevoss and so forth, they're much more interested in having uh, – government involvement at a certain level to provide um, both like trust and to remove more of the criminal element as well. I mean, I think like any, I think like government regulation is like almost everything in life, everything where, you know, moderation is the key, you know, there's too little and there's too much. And so, and then on the polar ends of politics, there's always going to be people pushing for the extreme, you know, true, you know, almost anarchist libertarians who, who want, almost no government regulation over every any aspect of life period and on the other end people you know who who push for you know too much and i think yeah you know i think bitcoin and and government regulation over these sort of you know bitcoin and other things like it is you know in the same regard where the right amount of government well, if, regulation mm-hmm. is not zero if you've ever tried to pay somebody in another country anything except through PayPal, which has its own issues and fees and problems, uh, I mean, it's weird actually that PayPal works as well yeah. as it does because every other method is horrible to pay. You either have to pay huge fees or it's impossible or it takes a long time, never gets there. And there's some, uh, there's this huge thing about remittances. This is one thing that Andreessen mentioned. And I think it's worth bringing up is that there is a potential benefit for poor people, for the poorest people in the world, especially immigrants who live in far-flung countries from, you know, where their other parts of their family live is there's a huge amount of money extracted when, uh, if you live in America and you're sending money back to Guyana or something, like the, there's a huge fee that comes out this 
send, it's it's not 10%, I think, but it's typically multiple percentage points. And then there's often banks have remittance and other fees, um, plus the government may take a chunk as well for incoming money. So just like voice over IP, at the crackliest, like, 1200 BPS dial up, you could still get a voice over it or whatever. Like the minute voice over IP became a real thing, uh, that changed the relationship between all these far flung people. Um, and people were able to talk to their family again. And then Skype video, even at low bandwidth, let them see their families again. And, um, so there's, there's hundreds of billions of dollars in the system that are, that are sucked out because each year, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars are transferred among countries by poor people, essentially sending money back home. And, and there is an advantage there. And, and just, and for anybody in the, you know, if you're in the middle class and above, or, you know, there's even things like the unbanked and the non-banked, the people who can't, uh, or the, the, what's the worst, unbanked and less banked or something. It's people who have a hard time having a bank account because of they can't maintain a balance or, or because they, they live there's in all a neighborhood these... that doesn't have bank, right? That's yeah, the, right. the push. Like, like there's food deserts that's or bank the, deserts. There's a push in the U.S. Uh, oh, what's her name from uh, the great new senator from Massachusetts, uh, Oh, Elizabeth, yeah, Elizabeth Warren, Warren has, yeah, I love. has yeah. brought this up to push to turn uh, post offices into banks. Let people do b- simple simple banking is- at the at U.S. post offices because there is a post office accessible to everybody in you know like like low income urban areas. Yeah, because they're yeah. So it's and that the only pe- the poor. only people mm-hmm. opposed to it are existing banks commercial banks. It, it's it's expensive to be poor. This is the horrible thing. If you're the working poor, it's one of the most expensive things. It's one of the most expensive ways of life because you have to go to check cashing outfits to get your money. Right. You charge excessive fees because you don't qualify for the level of things that don't have fees. You pay subprime mortgages. You pay like every part of the system is designed to keep you down. We can say it's unintentional. It may just be systematic, systemic, but there's all this predatory action it's, and like it's predatory a, it's actually a fascinating thing we don't have time to go into it we've gone long but yeah. the 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 US post office is anybody who's curious google it and read about it it's actually pretty clever because it works two ways one it would help a lot of people who don't have access like you said underbanked non-banked people uh two it would actually help the post office because the post office uh is self-sufficient financially they r- operate on the postage that they sell. Like every, there's a lot of people who are sort of opposed to the post office think that they, you know, should just go private or whatever because they think it's sucking up tax money, but it's not. But the problem they're running into is that as the world goes digital, the people are sending less and less mail and so they, you know, that it, it's getting harder for them to keep postage rates low and stay in the black. If they got into banking, it would be it would infuse them with uh you know, funds to be solvent. It's true. You know, the post office, not to get too deep in this, the post office scam is that the Congress, even though it's essentially a private agency run on its own funds, Congress forces them to fund their pension at a level that is so far ahead. The post office is required to contribute at a level that's so far ahead of solvency and necessity. No corporation, no other part of government, no city state or federal is required to fund their pensions the way. And so the post office is actually in better shape than it seems, except it's obligated to put money away that it does not need to. It's the weirdest thing. It's it's part of the, you know, it's it, it's a longstanding political problem. But but yeah, it'd be great for the post office. So I don't you didn't mean to take us too far afield there. But it's there are great benefits to something like Bitcoin that relies on that doesn't rely on using physical pieces of paper or parts of the banking system that are designed to extract money at every step. That the bars are put in the way not to not for sensible reasons like reducing fraud or reducing, um, oh I don't know. Uh, uh, 
making sure that countries know where money's moving to pay tax. Like there's things in place for that. But a lot of the banking system, the private banking system is set up for the purpose of extracting the most fees from the most yeah. people. We know right. this is true because banks make massive profits off typical banking operations. Right. So Bitcoin's potential or things like Bitcoin would be to break some of the monopoly of banks holding money. Um, so you know about this thing called Hawala, right? This is a longstanding uh, transfer system. No. Okay, so Hawala, and again, I won't go, we're very long enough. Hawala is uh, a system uh, developed in H A W A L A. Is and it's it's um and you've, I'm sure you've heard about the system. It's it's uh it's not just a, an Islamic system, but it's it originated in a lot of Islamic countries. And the idea is that you have people now all around the world, but it used to be traders all around these regions. They have account books and. So now, you know, here's what you do. You go to a place, you live in Pakistan, and you say, I need to get $100 to my brother in Indiana. And the guy goes, great. And he writes a thing in his ledger, and he has some codes, and he calls up the guy who knows in Indiana, and he says, give that guy 100 bucks." Yeah. And that's how it works. And the guy says, okay. And, and, and he says, you. I gave him 100 yeah. bucks." Yeah. And then they transfer it some other, some point there's some reconciliation. Hmm. Like then the guy in Indiana calls and says, you know, there's somebody in Burundi. Oh, yeah. And they work it out. It's it's kind of- Trusted, it's, like a trusted network. Yeah. yeah, and it's a lot of people are involved, and there's I'm sure there's abuse and so forth at times, but it's a system. It's instantaneous money transfer based on you know on and presumably and, there's some sort of fee, like that it might yeah, cost a, you right, 100, a, it might a cost fee. you 101 dollars to send the hundred dollars to the guy in Indiana. Yeah, exactly. It's but it's um, there's no yeah. There's, there's the the Wikipedia entry is actually very informative, of course, as you'd expect as a building thing. But it's the the idea is that it's um, it's. You know, and in in communities like that, even when they're spread out across across the world, there is a lot of trust because there are huge consequences because they're based on familial relationships or or, or cultural ones. And some countries there might be, you know, like a, you might get killed if you violate mm-hmm. the system. Other countries, it's not clear if you go to jail or not, but you'd be breaking this. You would never. You'd be an outcast for the rest of your life from your entire community. You would never be able to do anything again. So there's a social component to it. But Bitcoin is hawala. It's just done cryptographically, so there's no trust mm. in it. You can work with untrusted parties. So there is a model for this. This actually has existed just without the cryptographic component. And a lot of people point to Hawala as something that's a way you bypass banks. You bypass there are fees, but you bypass all the infrastructure put in place. And it's sort of existence proof that the system could work sustainably. Yeah. And and if you take trust out of it, if the if the flaw in Hawala is that you need enough people who trust each other absolutely, then you take trust out by using cryptography. All right, let me take one last break. Thank our third and final sponsor, and it's our good friends at Audible. Everybody knows Audible. Audible.com uh, has the largest selection of audiobooks anywhere in the world. Uh, 150,000 titles, more every day. Uh, they have two ways. You could just go there and uh, purchase individual books, but for real savings, you can sign up for an Audible listener program, and you get book credits each month for a low monthly fee. If you're the sort of person who loves when the talk show goes long because you've got a long commute or some other area where you just love listening to audio content and you have hours to fill, uh, Audible with more ebooks than you could – or audio books, I should say, than you could ever listen to in your lifetime, you should go there and check them out. Uh, they always want – every time they sponsor, they always want the host of the show to uh, make a pick, to pick an interesting book. Uh, I have one uh, that I've been reading about halfway through uh, on the advice of my good friend Scott Simpson. 
Uh, it's by an author named Rich Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, and the book is called Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. Uh, ostensibly, it's a look back. It was just written. It was just released, uh, I think, about a month ago, uh, maybe six weeks ago. So it's a new book looking back at the 1985 Bears. Anybody who grew up in the 80s, you remember the 1985 Bears. They won the Super Bowl, but that it was, it was more than just a football team. That was the team that had the Super Bowl shuffle. Remember that, Glenn? Oh, yeah, that was that great album. They, they I, had a, sure a video it. that was like, it was like the number one video on MTV. They were, they were the, 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 and they made it during this <laughs> oh season. God. Uh, it had, they had William the Refrigerator Perry. He was like a 375-pound defensive guy who they would bring it, bring in and give him handoffs when they needed one yard because he was just so big he could never fail not to get one yard. Huge number of colorful characters. Just, I mean, it was it was almost like the, the 1985 Bears were almost like the, the World Wrestling Federation brought to legitimate sports. Uh and it's not a. That's the thing about this book. It's not a sports sports book. It's sort of a a sports as pop culture book. Uh, and again, if you guys, anybody who knows Scott Simpson, follow his Twitter or whatever, you know he's not a, a sports head. Uh, uh, my wife's reading it too. Not a football fan, and really enjoying the book. Uh, really, really interesting book, and and it's it's just one of those things where I was twelve when the eighty five Bears were around, and it's I just took them for granted. But in hindsight, and reading the book, it's like it just you just re- recall what an oddball, crazy ass team that they were, and they were also uh, tremendously successful. So that's my recommendation. They've got the unabridged uh, version of it on Audible. Check it out. Uh, Monsters by Rich Cohen. And uh, just in general, where do you go to find out more about Audible if you want to listen to audiobooks? Here's where you go. The URL is audiblepodcast.com slash the talk show. Audiblepodcast.com slash the talk show. And then they'll know you got there from, uh, from this podcast. So my thanks to Audible. Check them out if you like books. Uh, here, one last thing I thought we could talk about before we sign off is the mm. whole go-to-fail situation, oh, yeah. which is interesting in and of itself because it's a really – I mean, it, you know, all security updates and security problems in, the, in a popular OS are important, but this is a pretty bad one. And it's also so just – it would be bad no matter what the actual nature of the bug was. <laughs> but the fact yeah. that the nature of the bug was a superfluous line of code that said go to fail oh is almost unimaginably – it's just too neat, right? Like if you put that in a movie, you'd be like, oh, come on, go to fail. Uh, well – yeah, I. It's funny. I my initial reaction was this is absolutely a plant, right? And um, Marco Arman asked the the good question, which was if an Apple employee. I don't know if he asked it exactly this way, but this is my version of it. Is if an Apple employee were suborned, let's say they were not a plant, they weren't hired by the NSA to become an Apple employee and whatever. But you're the NSA. You go to you knock on the door one night. You open your door like, hi, I'm with the government. Here's my whatever. You can check in my credentials. We need to talk. And you can't tell anyone about this because that would be a national security violation. You would go to jail uh, for a huge amount of time. It's a huge penalty, Fe- felony. In fact, uh, you might actually be remanded or, you know, God knows what. Like, I don't even – not like American citizens are, are disappeared, but more like there are rules now that we don't totally understand about under which people are charged in which the information does not become public 
Right. So someone comes and says, whatever, you need to put a line of code and we've analyzed this and you can't tell anybody at work. And if it comes up, you know, maybe you'll be fired. That's your problem. Uh, whatever. Right. Like that is not an implausible scenario. Um, I've- I've heard, right? uh, I mean, I shouldn't say heard, but I've read, and again, you know, a lot of this is speculation. I mean, how are we going to prove it? But what I've read is that the way that the NSA goes about this, and that it's sort of an open secret, is that it's not so Mm. much threatening, and it's not so much like you're going to do this or you want to, but that it's an appeal to patriotism, and that that they identify people within companies who, you know, and now how do they identify them? I don't know, but that they do. And who knows? Maybe, you know, in the modern era, you know, a, a lot of that could come out of uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, social networking where they or you know, somehow see what their interests are and try to identify people who are going to have a sort of pro-law enforcement or pro-NSA mindset. And that they appeal to them on a patriotic basis and that it's, that there's really no coercion. I mean, I think maybe the only part that's coercive is probably the, you, you, you know, we'd like to talk to you and you can't tell anybody about this conversation. And so that part is, you know, you can't, but a lot of people would obey that because they'd be like, all right, just for them talking to me, I'm not going to make a stand because I mean, they'd find people who are not libertarian. It seems like it would be very tricky though for the NSA's point, but it makes sense to me that this is how it works, that they appeal to their patriotism and say, here's what we would Mm -hmm. like you to do. And here's why it would help your country. Here's, you know, what we'd be able to, you know, you do this, it will help us because we'll be able to use it to identify, uh, you know, bad guys who are planning bad things to do in the U S and that, although, and, I thought that was initially, I thought that seemed more likely, but as it's come out, I feel like, uh, and actually I, Marco and, uh, and his gang talked about it on accidental tech podcast quite a bit too, is that there, it, it, it doesn't pass the smell test in that this particular flaw, um, is probably, it was probably a mistake because for two reasons, one is it's extremely broad. Once you know about it, you can exploit it and anyone can, any government yeah. in the world. So it, every, you know, so the NSA doesn't get it exclusively and that seems like a big deal. And Stephen uh, Bellavin, uh, if you go to his blog, it's a long name, but Stephen Bellavin, B-E-L-L-O-V-I-N. He was the, um, is a longtime computer uh, science professor, teacher. He's responsible for um, a blanket on the tool. He created one of the early tools that we used to use on Unix systems in the early internet days to scan for stuff. He's a really smart encryption guy, very well respected. He was the head of the FTC's uh, chief technology officer, chief technologist for a year recently. Uh, And he said, you know, the problem with assuming the NSA did this is it's just too clumsy. It's too easy to spot. You know, once you find it, it's gone and anyone else could get to it. He said what's much more likely, and this is why I kind of err on the idea that that it was just an error, maybe merging merging trees or something, is that – it's so it's such a weird thing, and it's so untested, which is why it wasn't spotted. It's so remember this 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 has been misrepresented. It's not that it validates the certificate incorrectly. Bad certificates fail. The problem is that once you validate the certificate, it doesn't validate that the key for the session was signed by that certificate. So you ha- you can't, so the key can be any can be from any party. So you're a, you're an interloper and you pass along all the certificate stuff and everyone's happy with that. Then you just send a key signed by something else and the key goes through. That's very that's a very weird um, exploit. It's very effective if you want to use it because you can see how quickly people came up with uh, 
proofs to show you the, the problem. But his thing was, so Bellevin's thing, which makes a lot of sense, is if the NSA does something like this, they put in some weird random number thing. They, they tinker with something so that they only, they're the only ones who know the right. number that triggers it. And you can't figure it out unless you do some deep analysis where you figure out there's actually a flaw in the degree of entropy or whatever. So one key will work and they know the key or right. one set it's of Right. It's more like they put in a back door that they have the key to, not that they would put in a back door that doesn't have a working lock. Because it seems they don't want everyone. I mean, you know, I do actually believe that their mission, I think from their standpoint, their mission is not just to, it's both offensive and defensive. It's like they may want back doors, but they don't want right. every other government to have access to the back doors. So something like this would seem but to I, fail. So test. I, yeah, I don't think that the go-to fail bug in uh, Apple's SSL code was a planted by the NSA or by an NSA mole. I do think that they. it's very likely that they do have moles. I don't think this is one because it's like you said. I think that you think they exp you think they I do exploited think that. it. I do think that they. Yeah, that um, seems very. Likely. And and it's like you said, and like the other, you know, it's the sort of bug when you look at the source code where if you're not looking for bugs, it's real. I can see how you overlook it, and it's again like I I blogged about when I wrote about it that not to get in an argument about C coding style, but it's why I think that the no braces if statement, the basic gist of if statements in C is if you say if this, then if there's only one statement, you don't need to wrap it in curly braces. And if there's mm -hmm. more than one, then you have to put curly braces to begin and end the block of what's going to happen if that conditional is true. And I've always felt having been bitten about bitten by that laziness and oh i'm only going to do one thing but you indent it and then you come back to the code a week two weeks later and you've you just quick hit return your text editor auto indents and you write the next line um mm -hmm. it's easy to make that bug and once the bug is in there it's easy to overlook it um but if you're looking for bugs, that really jumps out. The go-to, go-to. Everybody, like, when it, when this came out, everybody who, who can program even a little bit is like, whoa, how would that ever get in there? Like, if you're actually looking for a bug, it it's glaring. There's nothing clever yeah, no about one reviewed – if an auto-merge tool created this problem, no one looked at the yes, result. That, and, the and, it, and that's the thing. It, it's like an Occam's razor, razor argument where that's the sort of thing that happens from a – a diff gone bad, you know, that it, when the, uh, a merge, you know, the diff tool gets confused by the two versions it's trying to merge together. A lot of times you'll get a duplicate line like that. And it just so happens. But I do think, I do think, and it's just, just based on the way Apple wrote the bug up and the way that they, they fixed it days before, um, uh, or, or shortly, not days before, but uh, like a, a week or two, uh, uh, iOS 7.1 was going to come out anyway. Uh, I really do think that I think that Apple found it in an audit and figured, you know, figured out that it explains uh, how the NSA was claiming to do what they were doing. Well, the timing is right, that timing is suspicious. They're like, do you see the PowerPoint thing? Apple says, we are going to go through every line of the code. This is what, you remember that Microsoft did this. One of the reasons that Vista actually had a superior security model to, um, to Windows uh, uh, XP um, was not time. It was because Bill Gates, he you know halted everything the company was doing for months to go through an audit. And it worked because Windows Vista was much more secure. A lot of the XP stuff. Yeah, it has I mean, been ever just, since. Yeah. And right, it, it's actually outpaces Apple typically. And um, it's why that uh, one of the reasons that, 
exploits have moved to you know applications and weak points like Flash and things like that because Windows is more secure. So um, you know, and so here's another bit of timing which is interesting as well is uh, researchers just found I think it's like while we're recording this that like there's another. Um, cryptographic flaw that can be exploited that involves client certificates and TLS, SSL TLS transactions. So if you connect to a web server and you have a client certificate, which most people do not, you, you know, you get issued a client certificate when you log in in a specific way. So um, like a normal transaction, you just go and you get the server's certificate and your browser validates that it's accurate and you make a secure connection. But if you get issued one that's stored in your browser, that that certificate can apparently be reused by other people and it lets uh, that user be impersonated. Uh, the thing is like any other website in which the same certificate's used, they can, um, they can uh, uh, use that certificate to um, what, what, where's the what, what system has this bug? It's everything. It's part. It's actually a flaw. Oh. I know it's horrible. It's a. It's a protocol layer flaw that apparently will not be difficult to fix. But then it's got to be rolled out. Right. But the deal is that the there are only specific cases in which a client certificate's used. So some kinds of Wi-Fi uh, login things where um, you know you type in a username and password to log in over Wi-Fi uh, through. Um, you know, it's called 802.1x, all those, those systems that are used in corporations. So they've got a flaw. So it's not like a general problem I'm using my bank, but it's in the cases, especially in the enterprise, where you might be out in the wild, you're making a secure connection, you're using a client certificate, there actually is the opportunity for malicious, malicious interception uh, in a way that would let that uh, man in the middle uh, use your credentials elsewhere. And so a lot of Enterprise software will need to get fixed, as well as web servers, just to be on the safe side. Um, but the enterprise people will probably be on it pretty fast. But it's weird. It's again, you're like, did somebody in all the NSA stuff that got released? Did someone notice? Right. Hey, it seems like they have a way to do something that seems to be implying client certificates. Maybe we should go back through the protocol, and then boom, something that dates back to I think they're saying 2005 and affects the entire protocol. All right. I know there's a lot of people out there who really do think that these big companies are all in cahoots that when the NSA came knocking and said, can we come in your data center? They said, sure, come on and do whatever you want. Um, and that there's, you know, there's no way to disprove it. Right. And it's good. In some sense, it's good that there's some people who are skeptical like that. Right. But I, mm -hmm. I don't think it's true. I actually take these companies at their words when they say things like, no, we did not allow the NSA literally physically into our data center. Mm -hmm. um, and the main reason why, and it's not just Apple, I believe all of these companies, is that it's it's not in their interest to lie about it. If they had done it, they could just say nothing. And they could even say we're not even allowed to say we can't answer yes or no. They could just but, say that and yeah. then you you know, and then and then leave it at that. But by saying, by denying it, if they're lying about that, it opens them up to a a profound and tremendous loss of trust if it ever turns out otherwise. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen with the Snowden thing, anything, you know, can leak, you know, there's no, just because the NSA says you can lie about it, well, you can trust us. You can't trust them to, to have a mistaken leak. So I just don't see why anybody w would lie about it. I really don't. And I think it makes sense with the, with what we're seeing uncovered is what they've done is said, okay, we didn't let them do this. They say they can do it. How, how is that even – what do we need to audit to see that it would be possible for them to do it behind our backs without our help to do this? I think that's most likely because, it, you know, if you've got the NSA, what they did clearly – and what – you know, and it's funny. It's like as much as I might dislike aspects of what they did, this is kind of 
this is what they've been tasked with doing is right. they went through to find all the flaws. And like in an ideal world, what would have happened is the NSA would have found flaws and then they would have gone through and worked privately with every American company to replace them. And eventually stuff would have trickled out like something like that. That actually would have been a really great cyber strategy was to not implement flaws, but to be working assiduously to find them, maybe exploit them at times, but also be working to repair them because that would actually be good for the country and for national security what, what do you make of the one that just came out the other day i forget if it was yesterday or the day before where it was a very similar bug to apples but in um gnu code oh that's the way and this is this is another tls thing right, right. i don't even see i missed the i saw the client certificate one um god what is this one it's it's, it's a, you know you know that people are looking at it's um, oddly similar. so much more See, carefully. Th this is the thing that makes me wonder though about a mole because it's oddly similar to Apple's bug. It even involves go to statements. Uh, oh, that's funny. But it's a lot. It, it it's uh, looking at the code. It's a lot more subtle though. It's not as glaring as oh yeah. This is you could create yeah. This is you could create a certificate that would be accepted even though it shouldn't be. Um, Gosh, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what it comes down to is that there may be the GNU one the, seems really bad to me because the mm -hmm. Apple one. I forget how many people have already upgraded to seven point iOS devices are already on seven oh six, but it was one of those web ad networks showed that something like forty percent of iOS devices were already on seven oh six. It's just a tremendous uptake. Um, whereas so much stuff is like embedded systems and routers and you know all these things that don't get software updates are running this GNU well, code and well the GNU thing the fortunate thing is that I don't think they're going to run that code until the uh until the power you know the it's the, the AC adapter burns out it's true but the GNU one like the um like the the fundamental one that was just found too is it has to do with um if I'm reading it right is client certificate so it's only in specific cases where uh, like a server, in this case, like the GNU, when a server would accept a, a certificate, it should not. Um, so you could attack a site if it was running GNU and you knew it. So that's, it's asymmetrical in that there's fewer servers to update than, you know, embedded Linux devices. Uh, and the same thing like client, the client certificate flaw, like that can be fixed in a few different ways. The Apple one is particularly horrible because um, you can have any point of interception though. Like right. you could create a fake session key by being a man in the middle, you could have put software in a router. You know, there's, routers are corrupted like mad. There's hundreds of thousands of or, corrupted you know, routers. Or if you presume that the NSA, while they don't have access to Apple's data center or Google's, let's say, but let's say Apple because Apple has written this the TLS bug. So they're not in Apple's building at all. But if they're anywhere on the internet backbone between – the remote device, like that's, it's, that's exactly, you know, it. Any, the, yeah. your iPhone and Apple's data center, anywhere in that backbone in between this bug opens it up for them to, you know, be, a, it's like a classic man, man in the middle attack. Right. And you could do it on a countrywide basis. If you're Iraq, someone with an Apple device, I don't know if they're allowed to be used in Iraq or right. Iran or whatever you could, and you know, there have been countrywide attacks. Well, or think about how centralized the internet is in China. Yeah, exactly. Right. So this is this is one of these things. It's like it's not a back. You know, I again, I don't. I think assuming it were it was an error, uh, it's it's just weird. I think what this highlights, and I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot more uh, bizarre testing. I'm surprised that TLS implementations aren't 
more thoroughly tested them against certain things like the idea that a hacker could create a uh, malformed client certificate of a certain type. Like that's one weird thing. Like you can't test every kind of client certificate, but Apple's one in particular, it's like, I would have thought the test suite would have checked to make sure that when you sent it a session key that wasn't signed by the same certificate, that it failed because they test for like self-signed certificates. They test for lots of kinds of failures. And uh, someone asked on Twitter, even uh, Chris Pepper, you know, the great yeah. Chris Pepper proofreader and, and uh, extraordinary programmer. Um, Chris was like, well, shouldn't this have made all self-signed certificates um, pass the test. I was like, no, it's later in the process, but that was a good point is if this had been a flaw in certificate validation, tons of programmers would have said, why did my self-signed certificate not generate an error there and require signing or approval? So this one was at just the point at which most people who test this kind of thing or work with security didn't see it. And that's right. that, that, like I say, it doesn't make me dubious, but it is why I think it went un unfound for so long. And clearly, they're going to be, I assume, Apple and everyone else in the world will be beefing up the kinds of automated testing they do whenever they make code change libraries and this sort of thing again. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I think, you know, I think everybody, like you said, this is what the NSA is tasked with. So, you know, in some sense, nothing has been surprising with all of the NSA-related leaks. Uh, but on the other hand, knowing in your back of your mind that the NSA is doing something like this is different than getting, seeing these slides that say, here's exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and I don't know, it somehow was like a jolt to everybody's system. And I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, for better or for worse. And I'll even, you know, I'll, I'll play both sides of the coin here and say, you know, there's obviously there could be some downsides to this, you know, in general, I, I think that it's good news that we've woken up to this. But you know, who knows, maybe, you know, in terms of actually doing what the NSA is tasked with doing and actually finding genuine bad guys planning genuinely bad things, that this has made their job a lot more difficult, because it's, it's going to end up in a, closing an awful lot of these back doors. Well, yeah, the, yeah. There's there's that standpoint. There's also the like. I wish the NSA. There's it's widely stated by many parties that c countries like you know Israel, France, uh, China, and so forth, like even allies, that they're um, that there's backdoors and you know, there's equipment made by tons of Israeli companies that make stuff that make networking equipment. There's this long-held and often-voiced suspicion that. Every country builds backdoors into stuff that ships out of their countries. Now, in America, we're seen as being more independent. In Israel, even the national security apparatus, is more um, – they have fewer constitutional protections and there's more of a state of siege mentality there. France has a different relationship between business and commerce. You know, Corporate espionage is a thing that – or government-assisted corporate espionage is a big thing in China. So what I wish the NSA were doing was constantly working to find, report – and release information about these kinds of flaws that affect American companies or companies around the world that are in products that are shipping that we're using. Like that would be a better use of resources at some level to secure America, you know, on top of their mission of, you know, finding the flaws and exploiting them. I, I, I don't know. It's that would have more impact on business to not have, you know, Boeing's plans ripped off or Google's servers broken into. Yeah, I agree. I think they do some of that. There's some parts of government that do some of that, but. Well, that's a good point to wrap up. Uh, yeah. Glenn, that was a great show. I appreciate your time. Thank uh, you very what much. Do you wanna, what do you want to promote? What do you want to tell people to check out to find oh. you? Because if well, they need more Glenn Fleischman. 
Well, it's, don't it's follow him on Twitter. Whatever you don't do, follow don't me. follow For this Christ's guy sake, on Twitter. Do not, oh my God, it's a, it's like a curse. I don't. I think people, if you're bad in life, you're required to follow me and then read all my <laughs> tweets. Um, well, the magazine's book is actually it's um, at the printers now, and it's going to be shipping soon. And the ebook version is is more or less done, and we've released the PDF form of that to backers, and we're finishing our other ebook flavors. What's so, the print run? The print run is about 1,500. We're making a small print run. We have about 1,150, 1,200 committed to backers and other people. And uh, you can go to the-magazine.com slash book and pre-order a copy of either the ebook or the print book or a bundle. And um, we're going to be shipping out books probably, gosh, I hope within a week or 10 days, the books will actually be in some people's hands um, because it's the future and books get printed fast. Not only is digital fast, but books get printed fast and... Uh, uh, it's very exciting. We've got, it's got white foil embossing on the spine and things like that. Exciting. So it looks good. Yeah. I've seen all the proofs. I got color proofs and jacket proofs and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a really nice book and good stories and it'll be something to cherish for generations. <laughs> no, it'll be nice. It'll be great. It's what I was hoping is we're going to have a really nice, um, we, we did, we try to do everything right. So the print version would really be something that was a keepsake and, and it would be something you would actually enjoy having a copy of as a thing, as well as all the stories inside. And I feel like we're going to, we've hit that mark. A year or two, I tweeted something to the effect of, uh, oh my God, you guys, there's a store here. There's a huge <laughs> store here filled with nothing but shelves of printed out eBooks. Oh it's amazing. God. And I, so many people got it and laughed, but it was probably one of those you know, it, it, I probably got more people who totally missed that it was a joke than any tweet I've ever had in my life. Well, here's they were what's, like, so what's crazy. The, they were like, what's the name of it? <laughs> here's the crazy thing about the modern times, right? We're doing, it was actually much easier to get the book printed than to do the ebook part. Wow. <laughs> wow. The ebook part is a mess. It's like the know. book prints, like we send in a PDF and they kill a bunch of trees and squeeze ink cows or something and they make a book but the the electronic part is hard but what i'm going to wind up doing is we're going to have the hardcover book offset print we'll have the ebook uh which will be 300 pages the hardcover book is 216 so we have a bigger ebook because we were able to fund that in the kickstarter and then i'm also producing a print on demand version that will be a larger size because our hardcover books format is smaller i've made a different document in InDesign, that's the ebook version, 302 pages, that will be available print on demand because it is so goddamn expensive to ship overseas. Uh, but ebooks are, are print on demand or printed locally. So mm. people in Europe and in um, Canada, at least, will be able to get, uh, they will, it'll be black and white instead of full color, but they'll be able to get an affordable version of the ebook as a print on demand title. So um, the ebooks are much more like print is incredibly easy now as a, because I don't have to deal with any of the printer stuff. I just give them a PDF. Ebooks, you're like in there, like making sausage, and your hands are bloody. And so it really isn't a joke anymore, though, that you can commercially print ebooks. <laughs> it's true. It's like this and that is it's a saying. different industry than printed books. There's different chains of command, but it's like it is. No, I'm print. That's right. I'm printing my ebook. Where it's just it's it's all yeah. It's a weird world in which having giant hunks of paper wrapped and printed is easier than ebooks. But that is the world we live in. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And I look forward to seeing it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Glenn. Pleasure.